0: Hi, Dom. How's it going?
1: Uh, how, how is Mexico?
0: Uh, it, is a, it is a dream here in the warm, warm lands of Mexico. The only thing that's not a dream is all the... Uh, the
1: Dead b- journalists? Uh, and on that morbid note, welcome to Uncertain Things.
0: Welcome to Uncertain Things.
1: We have a slightly different kind of show for you today. Yeah,
0: off the regular path for us. It's
1: been a while since we had one of our how things work kind of talk. I've been wanting to start getting to some conversations about um, perception and the mind. It applies to a lot of our work in regards to attention, to to obviously social media, the press, our societal malaise, our partisanship, our inability to communicate. All the themes that we love discussing here on Uncertain Things. But we wanted to take a, a higher resolution view of what is it about our brains that make us so susceptible to these problems? So down the line, we're going to have evolutionary biologists, psychologists, um, et cetera, et cetera. But today we have potentially my favorite take on this subject from Daniel Roy, who has indeed studied neurobiology, but is in his day job, a sleight of hand artist. And in his performances and on his YouTube channel, he very happily discusses the the aspects of our of our thinking that makes us uh, prone to um, illusions and even crave them and how these can be hijacked and manipulated by um, a talented performer or you know a nefarious actor and p.s if you haven't already listened to our conversations with Batya ungar Sargon and martin guri because we talk about this a lot so okay so
0: and we should note that Adam knew of Daniel Roy because uh, unbeknownst to me, Adam is a magic nerd. I did not know this. I am a magic nerd. So this is something I learned about him in this process.
1: That is one of my... Uh, Your
0: guilty pleasures, apparently.
1: I'm a very proud magic nerd. I like gummy bears and and magic <laughs> tricks. So we talk about neurobiology. We talk about what makes us crave the deception um, that magic offers, and what makes some people um, be be less entertained by the art. Um, we obviously take it to some of the applications that I mentioned before. Daniel is very um, pedantic in his in his uh, scientific rigorous approach, which means he balks at any attempt of s- such a careless uh, journalist like myself to tie in together too many threads. We obviously talked about the art of magic itself, the community of magic. How has a community that is fundamentally based on secrecy uh, been affected by the advent of social media and YouTube and, and overexposure? What kind of ethical problems do magicians face vis-a-vis their audience and each other? Overall, it was a riveting conversation, and I'm not just saying it because I was totally hammered throughout So uh, just two small apologies. Um, We recorded it together in one room, which was nice. But um, due to technical constraints, Vanessa and I uh, kept passing the same mic between each other. So you might um, hear that every once in a while. But more tragically, Daniel also performed a phenomenal magic trick uh, in person, which we also took a video of, hoping to share it with you. Unfortunately, the video file got corrupted. Um, because I'm a Luddite, so me and technology don't get along. So, I'm still keeping the audio of the magic trick at the tail of uh, the interview. I I cut it out so not to interfere with the flow of the conversation, but if you're curious, it's in the post-credits. So, I mean, you might hear us referencing the trick during the conversation, um, but just consider it um, a Christopher Nolan audio experience. Filling in the blanks of the story out of synchronicity is really is really what what makes this podcast so fun. Um, so, with that, uh, please follow us on uncertain.substack.com we we post there um regularly and um oh and we will also share links to Daniel's YouTube page of course so you can actually see his uh, wondrous magic uh, for yourself um mm-hmm. so if you enjoy what we're doing here at uncertain things please give us a five star review on apple podcasts because that helps us a lot uh, to reach more people and um with that Daniel Roy Hey Daniel hello this is the first time we have uh uh, uh what's the, a magician a card swindler or yeah pick pick your term yeah <laughs> sleight of
2: hand artist magician yeah, I'll, uh, I'll take
1: neurobiologist
2: it. by trade by sure. training yeah yeah at least undergrad undergrad
1: so start by telling us a little bit about yourself
2: so I um uh got into magic when I was uh, ten I'm currently a you know professional sleight of hand magician uh with kind of an emphasis on the cheating at cards uh for fun and uh the neuroscience angles as well but um when i was 10 uh the preschool that i had gone to when i was really little they were holding a fundraiser right and it was in this kind of big concrete warehouse in san francisco where i grew up and they would the theory here was ah have a lot of cute kids little 10 year old alumni at the fundraiser parents (laughs) will donate more money you know uh, that, that was the theory and i think it worked but anyway big kind of concrete space and I got stationed at um, the station that had a mechanical bull. I don't know if you've heard of those things, right? Like kind of It's like a rodeo, but it's a robot. Anyway. Was uh, it like a
0: full-size mechanical bull for 10-year-olds? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah with
2: like mats and stuff around it. <laughs> Crazy, right? But obviously a 10-year-old can have no meaningful involvement in this contraption for legal reasons. So I was pretty bored and I wasn't really getting many takers. But the uh, the guy who ran the station, turns out he was a magician. And to keep my attention occupied, he did a few magic tricks for me. Um And I'd seen magic done before, right, on stage. But however much I love stage magic, um, I'd always kind of had the nagging feeling in the back of my head, oh, maybe this is just a case where I'm so far away that I can't see how it's done. Or if I was closer, I could inspect the, if I could inspect the props, maybe I'd know the secret. But this was magic that was done right here in front of my eyes. And so it was a very kind of visceral experience of wonder. And since then, I've just been obsessed with not really experiencing that for myself, but creating that feeling in others. I don't quite know why... That was the initial compulsion of make this thing rather than feel this thing more, but it just was. Um, so I went to the local magic shop uh, that week, and I was 10, but I impressed on the owner that I really wanted to learn serious sleight of hand. I didn't just want like a trick deck of cards or whatever. And he sold me a book called Card College, uh, Volume 1. It's the first volume of a uh, five-volume set by the Swiss magician named Roberto Giobe.
1: Um Before you go into detail, I just want to give context that Part of the reason that you're here is because I was a huge magic geek as a, as a child. And for me, my first step was to buy the, the the, you know, the regular magic trick card that they uh, deck that they sell when with the uh, generic party tricks that everybody can do. And I was really excited. And then I wanted to go up the next level. And they said, OK, good. Read these books. Uh, it was like, oh, all those books with really weird sketches of how to hold your hand like oh no i'm gonna play piano and that was the end of my magic career
2: (laughs) yeah that was exactly it and it there's a pretty big lag time when you're at least that age because these books are not it's written for adults it's it's you know very very technical it's like you know hold the cards in left hand dealing position which means the outer phalanx of the index finger lies just in line with the top card of the deck and the second third etc 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 right but
0: you future neurobiologists were like yes (laughs) this is up my alley
2: yeah, that. And I was like, Dad, I don't understand this. What does this sentence mean? Um, and that was a lot of that. But I was just obsessed. So um, I uh, ended up over the next few years going through the whole series and a bunch of other uh, books and you know videos as well. Uh, and I practiced incredibly seriously from age 10 to 14. I mean, like, you know, sometimes 8, 10, 12 hours in a day, especially on the weekends. Um, so I was, you know, uh, wildly obsessed. And then I kind of burnt out, especially going into high school. Right. Kids that age don't see you as a multidimensional person. They just label you. So I was like the magic kid, right? And I didn't want to be that going into high school. So I quit for a few years. And it was only near the end of high school that um, I got back into it. Um, at my high school, some of the teachers were putting on these like one-off lectures on some topic they would they knew something about. And I was like, oh, I should do one about magic history. You know, I can at least talk about that even if I don't really do any of it anymore. So they said, okay, sure. So I put together a little lecture on that. But in order to do that, I ended up having to relearn a lot of magic. Uh, and as a result, I just got really back into it with a, with a passion. And so, that was a moment where I kind of looked back on everything I'd learned so far and... Okay, what, what am I missing? And the technique that I'd always wanted to learn but never had, never had uh, is called the bottom deal, which is you pretend to take the top card,
1: actually you take the bottom one, it's something that comes from, yeah, no, I just give more context to people who who don't care at all about magic or card dealing, and what does that mean? Yeah, so
2: basically we, if we think about magic, right? Uh, there are lots of branches of magic. but uh, within specifically close up sleight of hand magic, that means it's operating through manual dexterity, misdirection psychology. and I'm generally performing with smaller props, and this is something that you are watching you know a few feet away from me rather than on a big stage or whatever. In
1: other words, this is an area where you have a lot of attention being put into catching the, the magician um, cheating, like when they're cheating on cards. So the art is to make sure that no matter how close you're being watched, the other person still can't see what's really going on.
2: Yeah, and so there's sort of a bifurcation of the different uh, sleight-of-hand techniques you have to learn. There are techniques that are purely for magic, they're just for magic tricks. And then there's a whole group of techniques that come from the card table, right, that are used by actual card sheets. And they say in management that 10% of the people take 90% of your time to manage. The same thing is true here. 10% of the sleight of hand techniques take 90% of your time to learn because of the gap in difficulty. Um, so the bottom deal is one of those secret sleight-of-hand card-cheating techniques where, you know, I'm gonna deal a game of poker, and I secretly got the aces on the bottom, and I deal out some hands of cards, and I deal the aces to myself, and then you win. It's a little more complicated than, than that, but you get the idea. Um, so I just became obsessed with this. I tracked down some mentors, people who knew a lot about uh, how to do this move, and put a few thousand hours into this one technique specifically, and then came a bunch of other card-cheating techniques along with it. Um, and then I, I uh, went to UPenn for college uh, in Philadelphia um, and uh, really enjoyed University of Pennsylvania. But uh, I also uh, got in touch with a magician in Washington, D.C. named Darwin Ortiz, who's become a, a dear friend and mentor to me over the last like, six years now. Um, and he's really a, a world expert in these gambling sleight of hand techniques. Um, and so I would go to D.C. every so often, take, you know, four or five hour lessons, <laughs> um, And uh, that was another route through which I I learned a lot about this stuff. And partway through college, um, I started out studying molecular biology and then sort of transitioned into neurobiology uh, as I got towards the upper level classes. I started to realize there's a lot of crossover here, right? Because I can do all the fancy sleight of hand in the world like you were talking about earlier. Um, And ultimately you know that I'm going to lie to you, right? I'm a performer. You're like, okay, I'm sitting here. I'm in a theater. This guy's doing stuff with cards. He's supposed to lie to me. I'm supposed to be entertained maybe. Um, And so I have to get you to lie to yourself, right? Because anything I say is suspect, but anything you say to yourself is you know, presumably more believable. Hmm. Um, I think a teller of Penn and Teller is a great quote where he says something along the lines of that the the most uh, um, deceptive lie or the most convincing lie is the one that you tell yourself. And this is a similar idea to that, right? I have to get you to 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 fundamentally tell i have to get you to tell yourself that something is the way that it isn't or vice versa. Um, which means ultimately all magic happens in your in your in your brain. I mean in a more literal sense of okay well it's just you know photons hitting my hands and the cards and going into your eyes and there's a lot of fancy processing and you make sense or try to make sense of what you're seeing. So in that kind of very literal sense obviously it's happening in your brain, but also in a more metaphorical sense, right? I mean this is fundamentally me trying to trick your brain into tricking itself. Um which means you can understand all of it through neurobiology and neuroscience, you know, someday in the future as our, as our understanding of the brain improves. Um, but uh, so I started to um, take a lot of neuroscience classes, found that very interesting. Um, and now uh, since graduating in 2020, obviously, world's been a bit of a weird place for the last um, year and a half, two years. Gosh, I don't know if you heard. There's this thing going around. It's been a, little, been, been a little weird. So a lot of things were virtual, did a lot of virtual performing, started making YouTube videos and got wildly lucky with one of them and then have kind of ridden the wave since then um and that's sort of been the trajectory so now in my performances um i think you know i i I put a big emphasis on the you know sleight of hand used to cheat at cards i find that fascinating i also like to talk a little bit about the neuroscience angle so people can understand some of that without giving too much away of course Um, and that's sort of the cocktail that i present uh, these days
0: so you were talking about the connections that you were tr- seeing between the magic that you were doing and the s- neuroscience or neurobiology that you were studying. What are some of the common ways that magic takes advantage of the ways that a- the typical human brain sees an- or understands magic? Yeah.
1: So before you answer, I will get myself more wine. <laughs> I think the first
2: thing to emphasize is that, right? we, have a number of different levels at which we talk about the brain right because again our understanding of the mind is is so so brain mind i'm going to use those interchangeably i'm not meaning to invoke any kind of dualism here um uh but just to be precise um but
1: uh the cardians of the house are already rebellion of
2: course of course yeah i may be a little careless in my in my uh lingo there yes (laughs) um so uh We we have to be careful about at what level we're talking about, right? Are we talking about the brain in terms of, all right, well, this group of neurons is interacting with this group of neurons? Are we talking about something within a single neuron, like, you know, how an action potential works? Are we talking about uh, a much higher level, like psychology concepts? Or are we talking about like a sort of metaphorical, philosophical, even broader, higher level, right? Um, We have to be careful that we don't use, start an explanation at one of those levels and unknowingly jump to a different one, Mm. right? Because, just because we can identify some concept that operates, you know, more broadly, like something I'll talk about in a moment is inattentional blindness, right? That does not tell us anything necessarily about the underlying neural circuitry, right? Just because I say, ah, this is a psychological phenomenon that we can observe in people and test experimentally, that does not tell us, well, it's one group of neurons doing this, or it's this specific circuit, or it's localized to this area of the brain. There's a whole separate set of experiments, right, that are, that are, you know, a whole different field than even what I studied uh, uh, that, that you have to do to answer those questions, right? So um, I think that's an important um, an important distinction. And, and the focus of a lot of what I did undergraduate uh, was, you know, I started out in the molecular biology and I went into neurobiology. So a lot of what I studied was, you know, at the level of the neuron. And our level of understanding of the, the brain is not quite at the point where we can be like, here's how a card trick tricks you. Here's how neurons work. And we understand everything in between those. We don't. But it's really interesting to try to bridge as much of the gap and to look at uh, researchers who are doing a great job of that. Um, so I think I think there's a lot of ground to be covered.
1: But we don't fully understand ideas like spotlight, for instance, right?
2: Yes. Yes. So so for example, uh, that's a great word. When we talk about attention, you can think about it as a spotlight. So we generally live with the persistent illusion that we perceive everything around us. And that's not at all true, right? Um, our Our attention is actually a very narrow spotlight. And magicians are able to manipulate that. There's a um, kind of a pickpocket magician named Apollo Robbins, who some listeners may have heard of. If you haven't, go look up his TED Talk on YouTube. It's great. Um, and he talks a lot about this sort of spotlight uh, model of attention as he understands it as a pickpocket. Um, as a magician, you know, what I'm doing is slightly different, but but it's analogous. Um, so a great example is something called inattentional blindness, where right, if we, when we think about misdirection, we think generally about, oh, look over here while I do something else over here, Right like we're literally getting you to turn your head so that you are looking at spot A so that spot B is our, you know, deep in your periphery or even like behind your head. You just cannot perceive it because it's out of your field of view, right? Um, And vision is the sense you're relying on here. It's not like, I mean, certain techniques that you have to be quiet about, like people could hear them, but it's not like you're worried about the smell of a technique. That's not (laughs) a thing that's gonna get you caught during a show. So, okay, that's one thing. We can just get you to look at one place versus another place by changing what you think is important. But the idea behind inattentional blindness is where it is in your field of view, but you still don't perceive it. And um, a great way of understanding this in less technical lingo, uh, it's more in the magic world, is to use a terminology that my mentor, Darwin Ortiz, uh, came up with, which is he talks about looking inward versus looking outward. So if I say, um, Vanessa, are you right or left-handed? Right. Right. In order to answer that question, you have to turn your attention inward and think, oh, am I right or <laughs> left-handed? Right. And, um that is a moment in which I could potentially have done something in your field of view. and you. Mm.
0: It's also like you put me on the spot a little bit. It's not like we're having a conversation and in the course right. conversation, oh yeah, oh, well I'm right-handed too, yes. because like that feels like a natural reaction. It's like, hello, stop, what is the answer? It's like uh right. a-
3: Yep,
2: there's a bit of a kind of social shock value. <laughs> right, that moment that your brain gets a little hot because you feel like you are
0: <laughs> Even though it's a very easy answer. <laughs>
2: exactly, and this is exacerbated when you're in a more of a theater performance, right, mm. and you're up under hot stage lights. And for anyone who hasn't been under stage lights, you can't see anything in the audience. It's like you're on the highway, but there are car headlights pointing into your face. Mm. And that's how the audience can see you, but you can't, you're just blinded by them. So when someone else comes up on stage, right, suddenly they're under the hot stage lights. Um, You know, you try to make them feel as comfortable as possible so they have a good time, obviously, but it's still a very different environment. So um, it it often requires a lot of their attention. And we have, you know, a limited amount that we can devote to anything at, at one given time. Um, and so inattentional blindness, sometimes called inattention blindness, is just a great example of getting you to look inward by, you know, posing a question or asking you to do something or say, would you hold out your hand or would you do this or whatever, um, to get you to move your attention inward, uh, so that I can more or less do something, not anything, but something semi-sneaky in your field of view and you're just not going to perceive it or remember it.
1: How much, from the performance perspective, how much time did it take you to develop the balls to actually do... The, the, you know, the sneaky thing while you know that technically the person's eyes are on you, but just, you have to train yourself to know that, and that in this split second, I know that they're not seeing with their eyes.
2: Yeah. Uh, it's a great, great, uh, kind of sort of topic to, to approach because there are a lot of elements to this. It's, it's a deep question. And right, the first thing, and it applies to a lot of different things. So, um, the first thing you have to ask is, well, right? How could, what might make this go wrong? Or like, what am I worried about when I'm, you know, performing? It's the same thing. People are like, oh, well, I, I'm, I have so much stage fright when I speak in front of people. Well, the first question is specifically, what are you nervous about? Right. Um, and in this case, you're worried that someone's going to see a card through your fingers or they're going to see your hand moving way It's not supposed to, or, you know, whatever. Um, so the first thing you do is you practice in front of a mirror and you practice on a video camera, and then you practice in front of your, you know, friends, family, forgiving strangers, right? And you need to make sure that from every conceivable angle that matters, the sleight of hand itself is really bulletproof, that someone can stare at your hands and they just can't see what you're doing. That's uh, one thing. But there are moves in magic that you fundamentally cannot completely cover. They require some amount of misdirection to make them work. So those are cases where, right, it's either a case where, I have some misdirection where I'm going to get you to look elsewhere or get you to turn your attention inward or a whole host of other things you can do. Um, and that's sort of the the icing on the cake. But the cake here is even if you were staring at my hands, you wouldn't see anything, right? So a, a big part of it is just you practice in front of a mirror until you can do it again and again and again and again. And then of course being able to do that same thing but in front of an audience when you're being paid mm-hmm. in front of hot lights, that's a different story mm-hmm. because the pressure's on, right? So being able to do a move well in front of a mirror is very different from being able to do it on stage. What you were initially getting at is how do you eventually have the confidence to do this, right? right? And there are there are two things. One is, can you do it bulletproof in front of a mirror or video where you just can't see it? And then two, are you confident enough in your ability to change people's frame of reference? This is something we can talk a little bit about later that I think it's much better to understand misdirection as a context rather than a specific technique. Um but if you can build that context correctly, you can be very confident that someone's attention is going
1: to follow the pathway you want it to follow. Uh, that's, it's, yeah, that's one of my big questions, that, that idea of uh, uh, reference and context and, and the, specifically the boundaries of this co- context because um, I, when I listen to you, and I recommend all listeners do that, describe magic on your channel. One of the things that really struck me is how much of the tricks, at least the ones that you discuss openly, is about drawing a very specific line about where the trick happens, knowing that this is where I need the audience's attention to be, but then also to create the illusion that they experience boundless possibilities, that they can do whatever they want while actually you're putting their decision on rails. Yes, I think that's a great way of putting
2: it. Another great way of thinking about it is it's like one of those... Um, Kind of like hedge mazes, right? Where you're kind of leading someone through, and you're being like, "Oh, isn't that part interesting? And isn't that part interesting? And look, that's so cool, isn't it?" Right? But what they don't know is those are the only parts of the maze that they can po- uh, the maze that they can poke at. Everything else would the illusion would fall apart. So, a great um,
1: and before you go into it, it's something that uh, that occupies me in many ways. Part of it is deception, obviously, On, in the political realm. You know, this is George Carlin has this famous monologue about the illusion of choice. And it's it's a big part of political philosophy and theory, that idea of creating the illusion of choice while actually having it very narrowly circumscribed. But also, you know, game design. When you design a video game, you want the player to experience freedom as if they can go where they want. But, but actually the game has limited capacity and limited time to design it. And you're actually putting them on a path usually. It's not even as fun. And this is also crucial for magic. It's not as fun... To really have the open-ended experience that you think you want, you want the il- you want the illusion of choice. Yes, yeah. Uh, speaking of the word illusion, um,
2: w- one of my favorite definitions of the magical experience is that you are creating the illusion of impossibility. This was a, a term. <laughs> it's a, it's a great way of putting it. It's a term coined by the late Simon Aronson, uh-huh. who I was lucky to befriend before he passed away a few years ago. Um, he I think coined this in a 1990 essay. Um, uh, in, I think it's the Aronson approach, but great, great book on, on lots of magic, but specifically he talks about the illusion of impossibility. And it's like, I've never heard magic better encapsulated in three words, right? Because barring an instance where someone actually believes that you truly have supernatural powers. And I don't mean in a metaphorical sense. I mean, they really believe that you are a, have supernatural powers. And of course there are people who try to convince you that that's the case. I'm not one of those people. Um, Uh, And this is really the case in a performance, right? You've paid some money to come watch a guy do magic, right? In your heart of hearts, you know that what I'm doing isn't actually supernatural. And at least the way I present magic, I know what I'm doing isn't really supernatural. And I don't put on any pretense that you're supposed to, you know, believe for a second that this is really, uh, you know, some actual form of, of, of magic. However... I have to get you to feel like it's impossible for a moment, even though your your sort of intellect, metaphorically speaking, knows that it's not impossible. So it's a conflict between the intellect and the emotions, right? You know... You know this. This can't. Uh, you, you know there has to be a naturalist naturalistic explanation for this. But you feel like it just can't be done. So the illusion of impossibility is a really great, uh, I think, way of describing it. Um, and that really is at the heart of the magical experience that you create.
1: Uh, before you move on, uh, I do want to drag you back to the question about putting the audience on rails.
2: Yes. Oh, yeah. I- importantly, that is really kind of the 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 key to creating that illusion right you're creating the illusion that they have much more territory they could explore than what they actually can explore so there are choices that the audience makes in a trick that really do change the outcome right they absolutely do but there are also lots of choices that you either restrict the choice or you um, influence their choice or you are able to find creative ways of just you know they think they're making a choice but they're not um and you can tear down what seems like an infinite number of options into something much more manageable uh, for you to handle with some sleight of hand or whatever. So it's often kind of a bi-directional approach of like, well, you know, I can can find any of these 10 cards, right? Uh, But I definitely can't get find any of these 52 cards. uh, And so I have to make you think that you can choose any card, but like limit your choice in some way. So it's kind of a, you know, constraining certain variables, but... If you constrain one variable too much it's obvious what you're doing, right? So if you can find different points to apply minor constraints, you can still give people lots of apparent choices that are choices, they're just minor choices that converge on the outcome you're aiming for.
0: So you've talked a little bit about like the ways that you can use basically like mechanics or motor skills to to pull people a certain way. You've talked a little bit about the kind of the psychology of like exploiting ways that the brain works and the way we can't pay attention to everything at once and how we look inward versus outward, are there also ways that you can exploit the social context of a room and use those dynamics potentially to also kind of pull attention one way or the other?
2: Absolutely, yeah. Um, so there are uh, kind of a few points to, to cover here. One is people often, when they think about magic, they're like, oh, well, uh, I have to, the magician has to make sure that people aren't standing you know, behind because that way I'd be able to see what was happening. Uh, it's actually the opposite. If you stand behind me, you just end up watching the back of my shoulder for the whole show and it's pretty boring. A much bigger issue is making sure that people can see that there's even a performance going on. Visibility is, is key, right? Otherwise, people can't you know, appreciate what's what's going on. Um, so that's one consideration. But in terms of, right, so, so the reason I brought that up in this context is because you were talking about social dynamics and maybe if I'm performing in you know, someone's home, right, I may have to do a bit of a furniture rearranging not so that people can not see how the tricks work, but just so that they can appreciate the show going on, right? Um, but in terms of social dynamics, yes. So, right, humans have lots of sort of norms of how we behave socially. Um, you know, if you make really large gestures, people will often follow those with their eyes. That can it doesn't always work, but it can help at least, especially if they think that that's what's already important. Um, that is useful. Also, in terms of general social dynamics, the more you perform, the better you get at sort of... Um, uh, the better your sort of snap judgments about uh, about how people are going to— what they're going to be like on stage get, yeah, right? You, you sort of—like, I can't tell you how I do it, but, like, when I come up on stage, you know, and I'm going to do a close-up performance, which means I need to, say, call two audience members up and they're going to sit next to me for the next 45 minutes, right? I better pick good people because how— It's not that they need to be, like, easygoing. It's just that they need to be people who I play off of, you know, in an entertaining way, and they're engaged in the show, and they're fun to work with, but that they're also not going to give me too hard of a time, right? So you're looking for a very specific kind of person, and often you don't have the chance to talk to people beforehand. If you do have the chance to mingle with your audience beforehand, that's awesome, because you can establish rapport with people. It's great. But uh, you have to sort of get good at just looking at a room and just being, like, you two, uh, and— kind of having some intuitive sense that I really can't... explain i'm using the the word intuitive somewhat metaphorically here i'm, I'm not referring to when anything. you say
1: can't explain professionally can't explain or just literally can't oh, verbalize like
2: literally can't i i don't know if i can verbalize why i my my kind of brain just went that person that person mm. those are going to be ideal
1: so so you don't have clear heuristics for this
2: i have some i mean one thing you can do is you can watch them behave if you peek out from backstage and you look and watch them how they're interacting right you want people who are very emotive on their face because The audience's response to magic is going to mirror the response of the people that are on stage. If this person is Mm -hmm. stone-faced, the audience will be too to some extent. If this person is very emotive, you generally want to, you know, look for that, right? I mean, you want people who look like they are just going to be a lot of fun to work with, generally (laughs) speaking. But sometimes there are certain situations where I actually want someone who's going to be a bit more challenging. And so... Uh, Or someone who can at least appear more challenging because there's, of course, a big difference between how people feel on the inside and how they necessarily express themselves in a social situation, especially when you bring them up on stage, right? Right. Um, So you can look for someone who gives off a certain very kind of like imposing vibe, right? Um, And then, you know, sometimes you might want someone who seems a little bit more kind of peaceful or easygoing vibe just based on whatever routines I'm doing. Um, sometimes I need an audience member to sort of briefly play a role in a certain story or narrative, and having someone with some kind of, a, you know, general disposition might fit that role better. So there, it's it's interesting because there aren't heuristics in terms of, like, what a person looks like or who they are or their station in life. None of that is a good predictor of any of this. It's just a you look at a room and you can kind of get a sense for all right, that person's gonna be fun and I think this person would be great for that trick and oh, this person's really emotive when they talk to their friends. They're gonna be great for that part. And oh, this guy's like, he looks very skeptical. I think it's gonna be funny if I involve him at this moment. Or even there might be a line, like a single line in a show that you know is coming up and it's you know something that you um, save for a certain point in the show and you just look at it in an audience and you go, it's that person in the back that's who i'm going to deliver this line to because it's based on how i'm seeing them act it's going to be interesting that but, way or funny
1: but i still feel that that um i didn't get an answer for vanessa's questions like is there a place where you actually use the social dynamic to enhance the the magic itself in a sense of well i guess you one thing that I, that i think touched the way that i understood the question was you said audiences mirror the or reflect the expressions of the people on stage. Um, well, this, this to me is exactly like this, you, you use that partly to manipulate the, the the greater numbers. Is there a way you use the greater numbers also to manipulate the individual that's on stage, for instance? To some extent, I mean that's always going on a little bit because they
2: will unless they're really comfortable on stage and they're like an actor or something, they're going to feel a little bit more. They're they're going to feel a little more nervous or kind of uptight. Um, just generally speaking, and and that can be I mean you you do want people to feel relaxed on stage and be able to, you know, participate, but you also don't want them to be too relaxed where they're kind of like, you know, overly like languid or whatever that that's not helpful. So just the innate pressure of being in front of a room of people, as long as you make them feel comfortable and confident and safe on stage, which is super important, um, that can be that can be a, a boon. But in terms of like influencing uh like using the social dynamics let's talk about the inintentional blindness example again when i ask you a question you turn your attention inward everyone else turns their attention to you
3: mm.
2: so there's a bit of a whiplash effect where right you're going to be looking at my hands so i can get you to look inward and i can get everyone else to look at you and suddenly all of the attention is either you know toward, within you or at you and so i get a great little moment of misdirection out of that so you're actually sort of combining um, that just social norms. You know, when I address you and you start talking, people tend to look at the person who's talking or who's, you know, uh, uh, or who's, you know, doing the thing, whatever that thing is in the moment. So you can exploit, uh, uh, you know, for entertainment purposes, obviously, some of those various social norms.
0: You were talking about the way that sometimes you seek out someone with a very emotive face. And I was thinking of my sister. She loves magic. She's like obsessed and she's Probably one of the most emotive people I know, and she's just like she's just in when it, like it's magic. She's like, oh, "I'm ready. I'm ready for magic to happen." She's like a super fan. Um, but I would imagine that not everyone feels that way about magic.
1: Yeah, my mom, for example.
0: Oh yeah, she's anti-magic. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious in the emotional spectrum that you've mm-hmm. encountered when you're doing magic with people, because I, I would I would guess that for my sister there there's something wondrous about not understanding what's going on in front of you and that the illusion of the impossible but for some people there's probably like anger right like i'm fucking pissed off like i that's illogical and i don't like it right yeah
1: i love those people on stage because it's really funny yeah (laughs) for my mom i remember exactly the my i I was just having a talk to her before this conversation Uh, i was just uh, and and i told her oh i'm I'm gonna have a a magician she just groaned (laughs) like i said if should I train to be as good as Daniel? And then I come home and do a trick to you. 1st it'd be resistant. I, I don't want to see that. I don't I don't care. <laughs> then I do it. And then you'll just be annoyed at the fact that you can't figure it out. And she said, you're right. That's exactly what will happen. And now that we know it, it doesn't need to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When, when I was in college, of course, studying science, a lot of my
2: friends were like math, science, engineering nerds, right? And those are not people who are like, I want to be caught up in the wonder. They're like, <laughs> I want to know how this trick works. Uh, so I like that actually, especially like especially like uh, if, if I'm in a group of people and everyone asks me to perform and one person's like, oh, I hate magic. That's, uh, I'm very excited about that. I'm like that, like, that just is fun to me at this point to have that because really what, what can be most satisfying on stage if you have two or three people up on stage is if you get contrast between them. Mm-hmm. Because if you get one person who is like super duper like into the magic, wants to see it all the time, like your sister you were saying, and then the other person on stage is your mom. Right? The same thing will happen and you get wildly different reactions out of the people and it's really interesting because they can sort of play off of each other. I can play off of either reaction. One person is like, wow that's the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life and the other person's like, I deeply hate you and resent (laughs) my life choices. (laughs) And the fact that you get that and the audience is watching this play out. Right? So it's a bit like an improv play happening Mm. on the audience's faces. Um, And that's I love that. I really enjoy it. Now when you're Earlier on when you're just starting out and, uh, you know, you, uh, the tricks are a lot more vulnerable. Like people can poke at stuff and it'll fall apart, right? Mm-hmm. That's really tough. But when you've been doing it for a li- really long time and you kind of know all the things that people could say or do or, you know, kind of try to pick apart, you're pretty comfortable with people going after any element of it and, you know, uh, um, being able to handle that. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, for me, I just love the challenge at this right. point. I enjoy it.
0: Are there examples of people that have gotten under your skin? Um, it's
2: rare that I'm like actually truly, it's very rare that I ever encounter someone who I would call, uh, you know, give the term a heckler on stage, right? right? Rare very, means that it happened. It has once or twice, and I'll tell you the stories, but you'll hear about, you'll. I think you generally hear a lot more about hecklers than there actually are because, mm-hmm. right, to, to be really specific, right, a heckler is someone who wants to ruin your show to and sabotage. take- all of the attention for themselves right that's anyone like if you do a trick badly and someone's like i saw how you did that they're not being a heckler they're just using their brain you're allowed to do that right it's not in in something where i'm showing you the illusion of impossibility would be unfair of me to say by the way can you just kind of switch off your analytical brain for this that's that's not
1: uh, i think that so so, uh, i i do want to have you clarify this line a little bit because somebody who's seeing your trick and then points it out Mid performance, you wouldn't consider that a heckler. No, not at all. That you fear, that's fair game. You feel well. I guess I lost this one. Yep, totally fair game. So before you go into the heckler stories, like what right. do you do with this? Well, when you're there, are a couple things. Sometimes,
2: uh, often they're they're wrong. Right, the way they think it's done isn't right. There are a lot more ways that magic tricks could theoretically be done than they're than they are actually done. So one option is they're they're off base. Now, uh, this is a it's a tricky situation because on one hand. If you can disprove their claim, and you have to do so tactfully so it doesn't look like a ha-ha, I'm better than you moment, right, um, that's good. But the problem is if you start—if you create that pattern, then they're going to keep asking questions until eventually you get to a question that you can't answer, right? So that can be uh, a challenge. Sometimes you can incidentally show that it's not the case. Mm. Um right like they're like oh I, there's a face-up card on the bottom of the deck and you just don't acknowledge them at all as they if as, i mean if they're the person next to you you have to but if they're out in the crowd you don't acknowledge them at all and then as you're making your next gesture or making your comment you just casually you know show the face of the bottom card mm. to everyone right and so first of all um if you don't acknowledge the comment no one's going to remember it by the end of the performance unless it's like the very last thing that happened um there's something, um, uh, There's a great book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Yep. Yep. And he talks about the peak end rule, which very briefly is people tend to remember disproportionately the end of an experience. And there's some interesting and rather funny experiments he did to confirm that with colleagues. But um, uh, people primarily remember the end of an experience. And anecdotally, I found that this is very true about magic. If I ask people who saw me perform a year ago, they will basically remember usually the last part of the last trick I did maybe one other standout moment that maybe probably that happened to them, um, and the general feeling and vibe of the experience, right. right? They'll remember basically how they felt and the last thing you did. So if you don't acknowledge a little, you know, issue here or there, you know,
1: an hour later no one remembers. It's it. really the George Costanza rule of leaving. Right. Right. What, what is it? Oh, you you'll get it yes, you're I'm just you, you just started watching it. No, he just figured out that, that he should stop in any aspect of his life, whether it's dating or work, he should just leave when he reaches a high note. If he's in the middle of a a meeting and everybody says, oh, good idea, George. He just leaves the meeting.
2: Great. This has been great. Yeah. But but that certainly is the case. However, I definitely, to get back to your original question, would not consider that to be them. I mean, if they are going, if they are trying to constantly at every moment point out their theories about how the tricks are done in a way that's clearly them just trying to take the spotlight sure i guess you could call them a heckler but if you just do something badly and they're like hey i saw the card in your hand that's fine i mean that's the you know they're allowed to do that it's like the valid way of experiencing magic i think i don't i don't Mm -hmm. personally find any problem with it now the solution is next time you know like be better at that thing (laughs) um but um there are certain things that you can not acknowledge because they're really not central to what you're doing. There are certain things that you can kind of incidentally disprove, but you it's a sticky territory because you don't want to build that kind of pattern. Uh, and then there are certain times where something just completely falls apart. Right. Everyone knows how it's done. And the best and also funniest response is for you to acknowledge that and join the audience and finding right. some humor in the situation, just being like, well, that didn't work. And, you know, kind of humorously throw the deck of cards over your shoulder and open a new one. Um stuff still goes wrong in my shows. I I would say actually in every show you ever do, something will go wrong in the sense of something will be unexpected. But we can, and this will also kind of answer the other kind of subtlety of this question, which this will hopefully answer that in magic, there are two kinds of mistakes. There are mistakes where I know something went wrong before you do. And then there are the mistakes where we both find out it went wrong together. together. And the first kind of mistake (laughs) is fine. The second kind of mistake you have to avoid at all costs. So the other thing you do is you build in these little checks, like okay, the Jack of Clubs better be on the bottom of the deck right now as I'm handing the cards to this person, and the bottom card is visible. Okay, good, it's there. If it's the Seven of Hearts, you've got some stuff you need to do, and that's why you have to have a script and know the whole you know structure of the routine and be able to you know uh, talk to your audience without using too much of your you know mental energy metaphorically to to focus on that so you can figure out what the heck's going on. Um, So that's a whole element of of checks and also making sure that you know what's if something's gone wrong, Um, but sometimes things just don't work and it's hilarious and it's part of the experience and you you learn to enjoy those moments too.
0: Mm -hmm. Should we get to the heckler story?
2: Oh yeah. Um, I mean I don't know if there's I'm sure when I was a little kid uh, I had you know people like just try to grab cards out of my hands or whatever because when you're 11 or 12 social norms aren't really there. (laughs) Or the social norms that are there aren't good ones. Um, Whereas, uh, you know, in a professional performance, it's usually if someone is extremely drunk. Um, uh, Sometimes they will just constant basically monologue from the back of the room, sometimes not even related to the show, um, which is always rather entertaining. And there's a point, there's a level at which you can play off of it, and there's a lot of ad-libbing, and it's funny there's also a level where it derails your show yeah. and that has happened. And then you just have to ignore them and just finish your act and walk off stage and be like, okay, done. Um, I've had a, you know, I remember a few years ago, there's this one guy who came up on stage and uh, he was just very drunk and was trying to like grab the props or whatever. And you can very much like, what's great is that the pressure from the rest of the audience usually makes them stop doing it. As long as you comport yourself with dignity um, the audience will very quickly take your side, as long as you're not, you know, being a being an ass about it, right? Um, and that pressure, I mean, sometimes, like, a friend of theirs will literally yell out, hey, dude, just stop messing up the show, right? That will happen. The audience will see what's going on, and they will understand, you know, how to resolve the situation. But often they solve the problem for you, which is pretty mm-hmm. funny, especially when it's, like, their mom who solves the problem. <laughs> it's always entertaining. Um, but, you know, that it happens from time to time. But, uh, like... I structure my, like, if, if there's a trick where someone's participating a lot, I structure it in a way where there's physical distance between them and the prop they cannot grab right now. So that if, worst case scenario, if they try, I will get there first. Um, uh, that's part of it. Also just setting up a structure of, like, you know, so people understand what their role is in this trick and what they're supposed to be doing, right? Right. Most of the time when an audience member, quote unquote, messes something up on stage, it's not their fault. It's that you as the performer didn't give them clear enough instructions and they just got nervous and missed a step. So most of it's just about clarity.
1: It's funny because this is actually a great example of the way that social dynamics affect the the rest of the audience or the, the way right. that the audience plays on top of each other because exactly. y- you are creating a rapport with the audience. Like you're entering a contract where I'm going to give you the illusion that you crave as long as this motherfucker shuts up. <laughs> That
2: is that that's that's what it's not quite what I say in the performance, but it's definitely what I'm thinking. <laughs> yes. Behind my eyes. That's
1: I know. And that's and that's essentially the and, and the fact that you say that for the most part, they actually play along with this. Is, that means that they they buy into it. It's, it's yes. an implicit right. agreement. But obviously, the interesting theme um, for us is the, the question of deception and illusion. Um, I want to go back to the idea of you didn't quite put it like that, but that's how I'm seeing it in my mind. It's almost a, a competition that audience members have simultaneously with you as audience members are trying to just put their face in your, in your act and, and figure out what the hell you're doing or catch it before it's happened because everybody has seen magic tricks and they, they know where this is going. So surely if I pay enough attention, I can catch it before it happens. Sure. But at the same time with themselves, and that's the, the desire to be deceived part Mm -hmm. where they they they're constantly being like part of your brain's like don't maybe don't think too hard right so to the the extent that it is legitimate to think about it as uh as a competition and you tell me if it is uh, how many times did you lose that competition were you you ever caught
2: oh yeah when i was younger and just learning of course especially in middle school people are ruthless right they'll catch you all the time no right but let's go to your profession oh sure um i it's been a it's been a while (laughs) heck of a long time um And I I don't say that to to be like, ah, it's because I'm so great. It's not that. It's just you learn with time how to cover your bases and what things, like, once you've been caught in all the ways you could be caught during a trick, you stop getting caught in all of those ways until someone finds a new way, which, like, it will happen again, inevitably. And you just have to kind of be ready for that. Um, But in terms of what you were talking about, about competition, right, I mean, you want to always avoid a sense where it's like a popularity contest or like, haha, I win, you lose. You always want to avoid that on stage unless that's like a bit and the audience knows it's a bit and it's like mm-hmm. a, a very clearly humorous but good natured, right? Generally, you really want to avoid what like negative forms of conflict, right? Now, of course, you can establish conflict between you and an imaginary character or, or within a narrative or sort of mock conflict between you and an audience member where they know it's all fun and games and you're not actually being like,
1: Haha! Ha, I'm so cool, and you're not. You have to avoid that socially. So, in fact, because what I'm describing is actually not the way that it necessarily plays up in terms of the performance, but the way that the audience often approaches it. Right. If I if I can reinterpret what you're saying, you're saying that part of the way to diffuse that is to make it to make the audience feel that this is not a competition.
2: We're together. We're in this together. That's part of it. There's another concept that uh, another term originated by my mentor, which he calls it um, like psychological surrender, which is. <laughs> Um, and you need to get to this as fast as possible, which mm-hmm. is you don't want to start out with a trick. I mean, your opener has to, by definition, be the least impressive trick in your whole act. Otherwise, right. why are you doing something less impressive later, mm-hmm. right? Has to build. But um, th- the idea is once the audience realizes they have no chance in the world of figuring out how any of this works, they just stop trying. Right. and. As soon as they get there, and that's not that they've stopped trying because they decided to kind of throw you a bone and be nice and play along. They stopped trying because they realize, I have, there's literally no way I'm going to catch anything this person does. Now I'm along for the ride. Right. Right. And. It's like Tolkien, right? Like
0: suspension of disbelief.
2: Exactly. It is, uh, Teller puts this, of Penn and Teller puts this beautifully, he calls magic the unwilling suspension of disbelief, Right. Because if you, if you uh, he, this is not my example, he's, he's given a similar example, but if you go to a play and you see someone fly, you can see the wires, but you knowingly suspend your disbelief and you're like, I'm going to pretend the wires aren't there so I can experience the play. If you go to a magic show and you see someone fly and you can see the wires, it's not a very good magic show, right? Even if you suspect there are wires, you know, they've got to disprove that that could possibly be the case, right? So really, um, right, they, some audience members may come into the show with a sort of competitive edge, Others won't, right? And these are all, in my mind, perfectly valid ways of approaching a magic show. I don't really, you know, aside from someone who's just trying to ruin the show for everyone, I don't really pass judgment on how people want to engage with with magic. I think it's not really my place to do that. Of course, I might have a preference one way or the other, um, but my preference is actually probably a pretty even split among the audience. I like having some people who really want to figure out how all the tricks work and some people who are kind of just along for the ride and then you like kind of slowly get people from one camp to the other. Um but the idea of your like first and maybe second tricks are are so impossible to figure out that the audience just realizes this is hopeless and i'm not going to try to f-. and that some some part of their their brain kind of is just like all right i'm i'm done i'm yeah. checked out
0: i'm curious like either in research that you've read maybe from your more science background or in experience and maybe smaller settings. Not, I don't think it would apply to larger stage settings, but it seems like you're, we've talked about all the ways that you're kind of like manipulating the room for lack of a better word. And in particular, the way that we perceive things. And I think it's about how we as like the norm, quote unquote, perceive things. But I wonder if you've come across people who aren't kind of neurotypical, And if they perceive things differently and therefore magic lands differently or they are like they're not they don't misdirect or they they don't spotlight in the way that you expect.
2: Yeah. So I I cannot remember the researcher, but I recently I didn't read. I don't think I read the article, but it was either an abstract or just a headline about and I don't remember any of the details, but it had to do with some uh I don't remember whether it was like a, um, a developmental or a personality thing. I, I I have literally no recollection of what said thing was, but it was some work about people with thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Wish I remembered, but unfortunately, I don't. Um, read it on the internet, so must be true now. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, it, it's from a reputable source, but. Um, you know that they experienced magic differently because they didn't uh respond to typical social gestures for whatever reason and as a result certain types of misdirection weren't very effective because the idea of asking maybe another person a question and then everyone in the room looked at that person expecting mm. to answer them the question for whatever reason this individual or this group of individuals that they studied uh didn't do that as much or did, you know some percentage less the time as, as always really is the case i don't remember anything more about that but broadly yes people are doing work like that I think it's really interesting um uh and I also think that just anecdotally I mean you that's the other thing that you get a sense for you look at a room and you start performing and there are certain people in the audience and this is not because of any kind of may have nothing to do with being neurotypical or not if we're even going to draw that distinction here um this may just be like how they are approaching the magic performance but um there are certain people who are just responding to 0% of your misdirection. they hmm. are just like, oh, crap, this is going to be, <laughs> you're going to be a challenge. Um, and you notice that because some people, everyone else is like, woohoo. And the person's just like <laughs> staring at your hands relentlessly. Right. They won't move their, their.
0: This is the kind of people that Adam was, was mentioning. Like the ones that are at the inner competition. Like I will not be got. Right. Transigent.
2: Right. Um, and this is where I, I mentioned earlier that misdirection is a like context right? That, that's how I think about it because it's not just look over here while I do something else over here. It's that, right? Because if you realize you've been misdirected, it didn't work, right? Even if you miss the thing that happened, if you realize that you missed something, that's bad. I, I, I messed up somewhere. So uh, what's really important is that you are able to create a sort of um, uh, modified or manipulated kind of frame of reference for your audience where they always think they are watching the most important thing, right? From their perspective, to follow what's going on, to see how the trick's done, to experience whatever is happening, right? That they are always following the single most important thing, right? And as long as they are operating under that illusion, misdirection's easy, right? If I'm like, all right, here's a deck of cards, it's really important that you shuffle these cards well, and I want to make sure that you shuffle them as thoroughly as possible, right? Everyone's going to look at you and you now know, oh, how, mixing these cards, this really matters. Let's focus <laughs> on this. It might be the case that I really couldn't care less if those cards mm. are shuffled or not, but that is a distraction.
1: I, w- I want you to expand on this idea of frame of reference and how you think about it, um, but also throw in this something that I was thinking of before. When we were thinking about um, the difference between uh, basically the two elements of manipulation, which one of them is excluding seeing certain things, basically or putting things outside of your field of vision and also focusing your field of vision, making right. sure that you do notice yes. this action and not something else. Um, obviously, they, they relate. I, I This is something that, unfortunately, I had to think a lot about working in the media and something that we talk a lot about in the podcast. When I worked in many outlets in the past 10 years, the way we thought about stories that we would publish um. First of all the most important thing about the story above the you know the journalistic integrity and value of the of the news itself was whether somebody's going to click into the story whether somebody's going to read it which means that packaging takes priority the yes. image the headline all that this is not new this has been the truth of, of journalism since forever um, now it's you can measure the effect more immediately whereas right. 7 years ago you would just assume based on circulation that you were doing a good job or not now you actually know how many people click to a specific story, so you can turn the art of of framing and and attention grabbing to to a, to a, like an actual science,
0: which which has a parallel, I would imagine, with magic going online and YouTube oh, yeah. videos.
1: Yep, exactly. Yeah. But but specifically, I remember that one of the things that I found both thrilling and corrupt and disgusting
0: was that the <laughs> terminology that
1: would be used in many of the newsrooms wasn't even whether or not the, the framing is good or not even effective, was does it force you to click? Yeah. And I found that fascinating because the idea wasn't, it's not good enough to create a headline that is interesting or captivating. It needs to force you to click. It needs to make it physically impossible for you to not, not re- read the rest. It would be like, bum, bum, ba, ba, bum, bum, you That's it. Yeah. I hijacked your brain. Right. Um, And that that's the way they would talk about it. So I, 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 I'm throwing this to you. But yeah. So this is more of a kind of just random
2: theory on my end, and like many things in the world of you know neuroscience, right? You can be like, ah, oh, well, you know, we know about this kind of uh, process and this process, and there's this thing we noticed. Those are probably analogous, and you can say that with the word probably until you do a lot of very complicated research to you know draw a causal connection there. So this is correlative and more of a kind of idea on my end that I think would be interesting to research. Um, when we talk about so. so for a little context, um, during college, I was contacted by two researchers. They are neuropsychiatrists, one from Harvard and one from Duke, and they emailed me and said, hey, we are going to put on a talk about um, the science of magic for this uh, neuroscience conference, and we need a magician with a neuroscience background who can help us, you know, demonstrate some of the stuff in the talk, but who also speaks a common language. Um, and it was like, there's my niche. Yeah. Yay. Right. <laughs> we uh, prepped, prepped the talk, and then COVID happened, got delayed a year, but we gave the talk uh, uh, in um, 20." Twenty twenty, yeah. 20 one. Yes. Twenty twenty one. Yeah. What is time? Twenty twenty one. God, everything blurs together. Yeah. Jeez. Okay. Um. Uh. But we gave the talk. Went really well. I learned. I mean, uh, you know, obviously, I was able to sort of fill in their their gaps in terms of their knowledge of magic, and they. I learned so much more about that uh, those areas of neuroscience than I ever learned in in college. Um. So that was fascinating. Um. And I subsequently, someone who saw that. Um. Uh, That talk, uh, they run a a neuroscience kind of public-facing journal called Cerebrum, which I then wrote an article for that came out last year. Um, One idea that was covered in another portion of the talk was the idea of attentional capture, how that works. And uh, there's one idea which is called top-down versus bottom-up attentional capture, which is a really interesting concept, right? So um, one example would be to say like, all right, now let's all look at this wine glass, right? Which is, yeah, like, you're just deciding co- consciously to, to look at the wine glass. That's one option. That's top-down? Yeah, we'd call that top-down. Another option is something, sorry.
3: Um, I thought you were like doing this, it literally. That was which it. is
2: dropping my wallet. Okay. Where you are not, so I, what happened there is I had my wallet in my hand, <laughs> and I dropped it. It hit Adam's foot and fell to the floor making a sound, and all of us looked at it. Um, you, because you felt the wallet, and you, because you heard the wallet. Um and we would call this bottom-up because you are not consciously going, I want to direct my attention here. Your attention is pulled by uh, by some kind of stimulus, right? And I think that this idea of top-down versus bottom-up attentional capture, I can't say for sure whether the brain mechanisms that underlie that are the same brain mechanisms that underlie certain parts of social media and also certain parts of misdirection. But I think there's it's somewhat likely that they do, and here, here's why. Um, right, so when we are talking about Uh, you deciding to direct your attention somewhere, right? If I'm like, now look at this card, it's really important, you are not inclined to trust me in a magic performance, right? But if I I have you pick a card and I show you the card, it's really important that you remember this card because there's not going to be a card trick later if you don't remember it, right? It's now clear to all of you that this is actually a really important piece of information. But this is very much kind of a top-down type thing, right?
1: You've created the circumstances under which it is imperative for you to remember the card.
2: Or the audience or whatever. exactly and that's different of course from dropping a you know a glass on the ground and it shatters and everyone looks at it right but the idea is if I'm going to misdirect you right I either have to disguise some form of bottom-up attentional capture as being top down in other words I have to disguise a moment where your attention is grabbed without your you know initial kind of conscious uh, thought um, uh, as a case where you did direct your attention there you know consciously um, and I'm using the word conscious, and I'm using the word conscious here, and it's always important to distinguish. The word unconscious has a lot of baggage. You'll usually hear me say non-conscious just to distinguish um, those two things, but I'm not even, for for, for the people who care, I'm not even choosing a frame of reference in which to talk about conscious and non-conscious actions or thought. I'm just using those very vaguely right now.
1: What we learned from Emma and Zev, right? It's uh, exclamation mark. Equal equal Better. sign, right?
2: Yeah. So, um, that's uh, just just to kind of put a pin in that. You guys can include that or not. It really we
1: will definitely. Yes. That. <laughs> um,
2: but I'm not I'm not picking any specific definitions here to be clear. Right. Um, but so just vaguely and broadly. Um, right. I if I can disguise a moment of misdirection as a moment of you guys, you know, choosing where to put your attention. And what we realize when we think about this is that all misdirection is actually direction. It's not a case of, I don't want you to look here, look anywhere else. That doesn't really work. It's that I don't want you to look here, so I'm going to get all of you to turn your attention here, because either I look there, or, and often and, um, all of the context that I've built says that this is the most important place to look, so that even if you're someone who's trying to catch me out and figure out how the trick works, this is the spot that you think you should be looking in order to do that, right? So it's a contextual thing. Um But I think a lot of this also happens in social media, right? Because, like, especially with, like, recommendation algorithms, which is how most of, like, YouTube and many other apps work, right? Like, you know, when I open up my YouTube recommended page, right, that algorithm knows me so well, and it knows what kinds of thumbnails and what kinds of titles and which people I'm most likely to click on videos. And so I'm left thinking, I chose to watch this video today. But uh, how much real choice i had in that is debatable so whether these are actually all the same psychological or neuroscientific phenomenon i don't know Mm. but i think it would be really interesting to investigate whether they are the same phenomenon and
1: even if they're not specifically the same phenomenon in terms of the you know the the neurological processes that affect them we just know that broadly speaking attentional capture is a shared phenomenon you know philosophically (laughs) this is a such a a deep question when we're talking I, I tried to not bring social media. I was talking broadly media, but obviously it was implicit in my in my context. But even when we're talking about social media, it's very much so. The idea of loss of free will. This is just something that we talk about a lot in the podcast because media and and the dissemination of information is a big part of of what drives us to outrage. I think <laughs> on our on our pod or you know fist shaking of course. Um and the in the context of social media, it's just it's just phenomenal how much political power these 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 invisible a- attention capturers have but it's interesting to note that this is not a unique thing maybe the scale of social media is but but the way we do it you know you don't even need to be a magician to to know that we are yeah. we are just yeah. dis- we are just exploiting the ability to distract people even in conversation and what even i mean <laughs> Easy if you go to all the history of con men and, and, and populism throughout history, it's, it's all about knowing how to activate very similar parts of, of, of our collective experiences. Right. But even in just interpersonal conversations, we, we do that and we, that, that's the art of manipulation. And even if you're, you know, somebody steps into our conversation that you don't, you're not comfortable with, everybody has developed their own strategies of how to deflect. From it. They know what expression to put on. The art of misdirection, broadly defined, and whether or not they are playing on the same process is just part of our human experience. It's like being in a society or being in contact with other people is the art of (laughs) trying to control your your partner's attention to some extent. So I know you're being scientific about this. I'm being a journalist, which means I'm taking a lot of shit and putting under the same category, but I think in truth, whether or not it's the same thing, um, you know, in the most rigorous sense, this is what makes us so captivated with magic. Because you mentioned the word surrender at some point, but this is where we effectively surrender ourselves to, to, to feeling that, and you know, people like to surrender. That's the whole, again, drawing in the idea of politics. People pretend that they like freedom and choice and all that, but essentially, we really love in some primordial way that feeling of something just happened that we don't understand we had no control over, and it just drew us and controlled us and that's why we like charismatic leaders. that's why we 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 like superstars and and bigger than life characters and artists, and that's why we like magic right. There's just something very human about that desire to manipulate on one hand and be manipulated on the other right that's, that is my my journalistic thesis that's how you write an op ed. you need precious few. <laughs> citations and scientific rigor and just just done send it
2: yeah and here i can't get through a certain sentence without being like well by the way what this doesn't mean is this 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 and this
0: audio uh, footnotes yes
2: exactly exactly uh so no it's just a different way there's different ways of thinking about the same thing oh I, you know speaking of of the packaging that you mentioned earlier about you know that there's um uh the creator of patreon a guy named jack conti um also part of the band uh, he, um, I, I didn't know the
0: guy who was in Pomplemousse is the creator. Yeah, Jack Conti,
2: bald guy with a big beard. He, wow. He's the, he the
1: co founder of, of Patreon. He's yep. Not a creator on Patreon.
2: No, no, he is the co founder wow. of Patreon.
0: I wonder if he started it because they wanted, Pomplemousse wanted more. That's yeah. It. Yep,
2: they started it because they, I think vaguely, they didn't want to have to sign to a record label and have that <laughs> restriction. So they were a very successful band, but really? they, uh, they have never signed with a label as far as I know. Um, so anyway, um, He, uh, talked in an interview about something that was really interesting, which is, um, you know, okay, if you're a person doing some kind of craft or art or whatever thing on the internet, right, of course, you would like to maintain some kind of artistic integrity, whatever that means, but also, you want people to watch your stuff, right? So, you have to identify for yourself what are the things, what are the factors or variables that are at the core of what you do, and you will never compromise on these. And then what things are just the wrapping paper? What's the packaging? And you could care less, right? So you will tailor those to whatever performs best. So he talked about, again, I, just, I saw this years ago, so I'm sure I misremember lots of this, um, but uh, he, if I, in this interview, talked about how for him, like, the arrangement and the musicality and a bunch of all that stuff is super important. But what he doesn't really care about is which songs they play. It's not very important to him. Song choice is not nearly as important. So they cover a lot of very popular songs, right? Those songs are innately going to be viewed more than if they did a very niche song no one's ever heard of, right? So he's identified for himself, you know, what are the things where I will give it my all artistically? And what are the things where I will kind of be, be swayed by whatever performs well? And so... I've had to think a lot about that, doing magic on YouTube and trying to get, you know, what is fundamentally close-up magic meant to be done for other people in a small room to work, uh, you know, uh, on video where people can't fundamentally interact and you have to think about, well, what's at the core of what I do and I won't compromise on that. And then what are the things where I am willing to kind of just make changes and see what performs well? Um, So that's been been really interesting. And I think I kind of take a similar... Like the construction of the trick and how tight and, you know, everything it is. That's all super important to me. But
1: less important is specifically which tricks I do. What do you feel is most compromised by by translating magic to YouTube? Well,
2: I think the thing that's really compromised is not something that you could possibly fix because it's just the fact that you lose the interaction. If you don't have that interaction the audience and you don't have the real byplay play and you can't have them physically reach into the deck and do something as simple as pick a card right with all of these things you are losing a an interactive human element right um and that is really hard to kind of recreate in any meaningful way even if you perform it for another person on video it's not like the viewers part of that interaction right. so
0: it's also kind of Potentially puts up a, another layer of yes. disbelief because yep. it's like well you could doctor that.
2: Thing. Yes, you could do yes it exactly. Um, I have like my most popular YouTube video. It was one of the early ones that I released and I didn't Realize it, it is a single take right like it is a, a sing, It's shot with three cameras, but it's a single take with three cameras and I cut between the cameras But those cuts are mm. not they do not obscure any sleight of hand. They're not jumping around It is a continuous sequence it's just so that you're always watching from the camera where it's actually easiest to see what's happening. What I didn't realize at the time, being inexperienced at making YouTube videos, uh, is that um, people would think that I use those camera cuts not to help them see the action, but actually to, you know, distract or hide stuff. So it was littered with comments about like, oh, this is... Now, luckily, I have other videos where I actually do the same trick or a similar trick for a live audience in one take, but, you know, that doesn't people prevent people from being suspicious. Now, that's fine. Okay, they can be suspicious, but it's like, I've now learned that if I'm going to shoot a camera with multiple uh, shoot a video with multiple cameras I should say that right it is very helpful to have multiple camera angles because sometimes you just need to look really closely at the cards to appreciate what's happening but I have to choose the proper times in the video to switch angles so that even if I had used that camera cut to hide something which I don't but even if I had it wouldn't explain the trick that happens next that all of the relevant context is present in one continuous shot mm. From that camera, I just have to keep that in mind
1: we'll talking about YouTube so um my brief experience with the magic world made me really appreciate just how much of a guild almost a community is first of all, you mentioned a lot of, of names you you name dropped a bunch which implies just how close and small the community is but also right. there is a, a lot of strong honor code that brings us together right That the idea that obviously you don't share the secrets because that defeats the point. It's it's tinged with guildiness in it, right? To what extent, first of all, tell me if that's even true. I mean, I I was always brought on that impression, but um, if it's true, how much does YouTube and and the internet disrupt that?
2: Well, I think Magic used to be more guild-like than it is now because YouTube in, whatever, I think 2005 when it, started it changed everything right uh because now for a lot of magic tricks you can just look them up on youtube and find a 15 year old kid in his bedroom explaining how they work and you know for our zoomer
1: and under uh listener actually are you a zoomer daniel or a borderline millennial
2: i'm i was born in 1996 so i'm the exact borderline between um gen z and millennial Oh, yeah. that that, far? that is oh. the that is the 1996 is like the last year of millennial but the first year of gen z i think when i mm. look it up so I, I i i'd like to think of myself as a millennial i <laughs> well i'm a millennial insofar as i use primarily youtube not tiktok oh yes. yeah there you go i identify myself by my social media app of choice
1: <laughs> um yeah to to in the same way that that we are we are I guess culturally more uh, Gen X than we are Millennials, um, despite a 10 year difference. Anyway, back in the day, when you wanted to actually see magic explained or exposed, there was this dude in a mask that had a special uh, like NBC or Fox News. It's called Breaking the Magician's Code. I don't know how much of it was staged or not. I mean, it was a staged event, obviously. But but there was an idea that this is not something that you commonly do. You don't just go about explaining some of the, the biggest tricks in magic. It's a somewhat shameful thing to do. At least, even if it was done with the artist's consent, it was still important that publicly it was communicated as taboo. But now anyway, anybody who has enough knowledge of magic can just go on YouTube and, and share it. With everyone yeah.
2: so i don't know too much about the whole masked magician saga That was kind of before my time but definitely not with the consent of the creators and the magic community did not look fondly upon him and i don't. I think...
1: remember there was a uh yeah. again i didn't know how much of it was real but there was a yeah. uh, response to anybody anybody who's interested this is it was probably the most dramatic moment in the 90s magic world there was a response video of the magician community when they exposed the exposer. yes and it was a yes. whole uh event yeah. it was fun yeah um
2: but uh yeah, YouTube changed everything, which, right, so so when I was 10 when I started, which means it was 2006, so YouTube already existed. You could already at that point look up how tricks were done on YouTube, but I got very lucky that the owner of the magic shop in San Francisco, it's called Misdirections Magic Shop, actually, and the owner, Joe Pond, uh, fantastic mentor, g- great broad knowledge base, and really impressed the importance of learning through, like, legitimate sources, like, you know. Now, sure, YouTube has that va- and other social media apps, but primarily YouTube. Has vastly uh, expanded the accessibility of magic. People who live in places where it was really hard to buy magic books or couldn't afford them because they're not cheap um, uh, now have access to learning about magic, which is awesome. The less awesome side is that most of the teaching that's done on YouTube isn't so great, and also a lot of it is just, um, you know, how the tricks are done. Now, there's a there's somewhat of a generational gap in which how mean, magicians.
3: But
1: which you mean it's more of just exposing without actually explaining. Right, this is the
2: secret, not here's how to mechanically do this and all of the, you know, variables that follow. Um, so the, the there's a bit of a generational divide in magic about how people view this. Some people view YouTube as entirely a bad thing. Some people view it as entirely a good thing. Some people view it as, you know, somewhere in the middle. And I think there are arguments to be made on, on, on all sides here. Um, I and mean, the way I see things is, good, bad, or otherwise, um, it's not like we can go back in time. Uh so very
0: Matt Welchie. Very Matt Welchie? Yeah.
2: It's 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 just an irreparable change, which means if you do a sort of standard magic trick that's very easy to describe in a sentence, right, someone can go on the internet and look it up and find out how not necessarily how you did the trick, but how a trick like that can be done Mm -hmm. as explained by a 12-year-old in his mom's bedroom, Mm -hmm. right, on a, you know, crappy camera from 10 years ago, right? Uh, That's a thing. So, uh, you know, I I think that really changes things. Um, People also learn a lot from there, and, you know, the teaching is uh, kind of a hodgepodge, so sometimes they learn something really great, other times not so much. Um, But... On the flip side, right, there's lots of old footage of some of the, you know, great sleight-of-hand masters of times past, you know, Fred Caps, Dye Vernon, um, Ed Marlowe, Ricky Jay, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. The, the list goes on. And all of this performance footage is on YouTube, which is an
3: incredible
2: resource. I mean, there are certain shows uh, that of these people that have been immortalized on YouTube, and I've watched some of these, like, hundreds of times because mm. it's just a goldmine. And this is not about how the tricks work this is just watching them perform for a live audience and learning so much from it so i actually made a playlist on my channel of 52 cuz 52 cards in a deck <laughs> videos that you should watch i think it's just called magic you should watch and it's just 52 videos of performances on youtube that i think are would be really valuable to anyone who either does magic or like just likes watching it mm. um uh so uh you know i think that definitely are some you know perks and drawbacks to that of course for me personally there's been a lot of perks because uh youtube has really helped to kickstart some of my career so i benefit from this you know a bit of a conflict of interest in anything i see yeah. here because i certainly benefit from youtube
1: what's the most you know angry strongest reaction against youtube that you've encountered
2: Well, that it sort of is degrading magic and that it cheapens magic and all of YouTube is just exposure and there's nothing good about it and anything posted about magic on the internet is sort of a, you know, cardinal sin against, you know, the purity of the art form.
1: Are there, like, clubs that that, that won't host you if you went on YouTube, or...? I don't know, actually. Um, These days,
2: probably not. It used to be the case that, that certainly... I mean, like, uh... I don't remember the details, but I think Penn and Teller at one point were like banned from like the magic circle because they revealed a trick in part of their act, but it was like a bit sort of. But then they're also so big that it doesn't matter <laughs> to yeah, them, okay. right? They're Penn and Teller, right? You can do whatever they want. So, um, uh,
1: canceling the uncancelable.
2: Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and so it's just, um, I, I think that, I mean, no one in their right mind would say that YouTube is like going to, that social media is just going to go away. Like, right. So you have to work with it, right? For example, you, if you really want, some magicians, and I think this is a fair perspective, are okay if they do tricks and the audience then goes home and looks them up and figures out how the trick worked. Some people are just like, look, I want them to experience magic in the moment. If they figure it out later on their own time doing their own research, fine. That's an occupational hazard. Um, I take a different, and I I really think that's a fair perspective and there's a good argument to be made for that. I take a different perspective, which is I want to make it as hard as possible for people to figure out how the tricks are done after the show. I want it to be really, really, really difficult to go look these up and find a satisfying explanation, right? Sure, you might look up a trick and find something, some kind of explanation. But hopefully, knowing what you'll find on the internet when you look it up, I've done enough in the show to
1: make it clear that I could not have done the trick that way. Mm-hmm. Um, Is, does that mean that also the, the there's a... Does that also change the general language of magic, knowing that so many of the fundamentals are already available for whoever searches them to up? Like, does it make you start looking for ways to conceal that, tricks that cannot be easily explained, or developing personalized skills that nobody can imitate?
0: Or put in another way, like, can you try create something new?
1: Of course, yeah. I mean, all yes. No, but I'm thinking something new that also is not just you know using those old pieces that sure like a lo- the, the, the building blocks that a lot of old magic is based on it's something the,
2: is- the way i think about it well first of all all creativity in magic as other things is iterative it is exceedingly rare that someone has an idea that is completely new and is based not at all on any kind of pre- uh, you know preceding work that virtually never happens and all creativity whether or not you know it at the time of having the idea is iterative and most ideas you have in magic someone else had a hundred years ago but you know there's certainly ground to be covered um but the way I like to think about dealing with the way the internet is these days is the idea of a layering, right? If I just do a trick and there's only one method to it, if you figure that method out either in the room or later on, you know, trick's over. But if I can layer five or six different things, even if you could individually find those things, if I can layer them together, uh, then it's going to be a lot harder for people to, to work out, presumably. So I think that's one way of, um, of approaching it uh, is, is just that kind of layering.
1: Just to conclude this topic, you do every once in a while, and I'm very grateful for that, reveal small magic tricks on your channel. How do you decide which magic tricks to reveal and which Yeah,
2: I, I one thing, for example, that's really we were talking about packaging a little bit ago, but what things are things where I won't compromise, mm-hmm. right? Like um, I do not really ever want my channel to become a magic tutorial channel where all I do is expose and teach magic tricks, right? Like um without there's a whole discussion to be had, lots of people who do that, and there's a whole discussion to be had about whether that's inherently good or bad, or do they do it well or not, and that's a complex topic that I just don't really care to get involved in, uh, because it's, I don't know if there's really good answers to a lot of those questions. However, without necessarily passing judgment on that one way or the other, I just don't want my channel to be that, because I just want it to be about something else, um, um, and, and i I just make it clear that that's not a value judgment about the different ways that people run channels. It's just a personal taste thing. Um, and um, I think that uh, for me, like I'm okay talking about magic and ex- and explaining things that are kind of around magic, like explain some of mm. the, you know, science around them or some of the principles around them, right? But with one or two exceptions, there are there are two or three videos on my channel where I actually truly teach a trick right? I think there are three of them right now. And I picked those tricks very carefully because they're tricks that if you like, these are not like deep trade secrets, you can find these on the internet, right? Um, But I felt like I wanted to teach them in a more nuanced way where someone could actually pick up a deck of cards and actually learn it. Um, And based on the comments, I get people actually have done that, which is cool, right? And I get like, oh, I did this and I did it for my dad or my daughter or whatever. And they really liked it. And you know, quarantine has been so boring or like (laughs) stressful and this really helped. It's like, cool. Awesome. Love it. So Right, I've done three of those, and you know, uh, I maybe I'll do another one someday, but I really can't see myself doing much more of that.
1: So the standard for you there was those are already available;
2: they're there, and I'm I'm just going to do it a little better. They're available enough, and I can teach a version that's especially easy to learn. But also that if you watch those videos, none of the principles that I explain there, like if you go watch a good close-up magician knowing how those three tricks work is not going to help you at all, right? Like, these are either principles that a good magician would already layer in or just wouldn't use or would use in different... So, you know, it's just not so much of a concern. Um, But in general, I'm fine talking about, like, uh, topics around magic. Like, for example, especially when we talk about gambling sleight of hand, right? It's no secret that I can, um, you know, deal off the bottom of the deck, right? I talk about this in my live performances all the time. So to say... Well, now I'm going to demonstrate how I deal off the bottom of the deck and I'll talk about all, you know, all the theory around that that might be interesting to people, right? Uh, I'm not, this is not exposing or like ruining magic tricks, right? First of all, conceptually, you can imagine that people can do that, right? It's not something that you don't know of. And if the technique is done really well, it doesn't matter that you know it exists. You can't see it. You just cannot detect it and you won't know it's happening. So there's certain topics where I'm okay (coughs) giving a little more information. I'm not teaching people how to do it. Like I do not, that would be a very different video. And Mm -hmm. I have an online course where I do teach it. Shameless plug. Um, uh, But uh, uh, it's a very different approach when I'm teaching how something is done versus I'm just talking about it.
1: Just to tie this into the beginning of the conversation, the, uh, I I wasn't, when I was talking about you teaching magic tricks, I wasn't talking about you talking about the deals. I was talking about the actual tricks. Um, But the, but it's absolutely true. I remember watching your your um, videos about the the was the second deal and the bottom deal, and it, it really I what's so beautiful about this is that no matter how much you tell us what you do, you can't see it. You in literally in close up, the actual camera is zoomed in, and you can't see it. And that's when th- that's what made me want to talk, have this conversation about attention in the first place. So so answer this question to the extent that you're obviously comfortable with. Sure. But when you have tricks like this, and I'm, I'm assuming that they are tricks that are way more elaborate than this, how many possibilities do you need to keep track of in your mind? How do you keep track of the fucking... Like, you know, the permutations and the 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 the, uh, the dialogue trees that you have to follow.
2: Yes, that's that that can take some practice. So there are certain tricks where it seems like there are lots of ways it can go, and there's really only one way it can go, but there are other tricks where it can go a lot of ways. And part of it is you just have to practice, like there are certain tricks where you fundamentally can't practice them without a willing audience member to help you out because you literally need another human in the room to just make random choices so that you have to steer the ship in whatever way. Um... But a big part of this is sort of the, the setting, right? If I get to like design my own theater show and have a set and assistance yeah. and everything, I can give you a lot more freedom because I have so many more methods at my disposal when I control every aspect of the lighting and the seating and all that, right? Um, of course, the less control I have, um, or the less control it seems that I have over the, the, the circumstance, um, then there are uh, you know fewer options available to me. But we call these outs where, mm-hmm. Right. Uh, An out, basically, is a different way that a trick could end. So it might be that, and we use these in two contexts. One is there's a trick where um, there are just six equally likely endings, for example, and I can get to any of them, right? Uh, But there are other cases where this is plan A, and then there's an asterisk, and here's plan B, C, D, E, and F in case plan A doesn't work, right? Mm. Um, But, of course, what the audience never knows is
1: whether plan A happened or not. Um, And part of the... uh, Aesthetic. I call it aesthetic because that's the word that I always go to. You know, um uh, I I think I told you this. Um two of our recurring guests, Daniel, are um um, I guess she's not a recurring, she's a recurring guest in our household, but Batya Ungar Sargon is one and, and Misha Thomas is the is another Batya. Ungar Sargon is the um, deputy opinion editor at Newsweek, and uh Misha is a group psychologist, brilliant guy. And A dialogue that we have between the three of us is that um, Misha is obsessed with psychology, so he interprets every political, social, cultural problem through that lens. Batia is obsessed with class, so everything is—is—is is, is that why people voted for Trump? Why people are angry in the Houthis' Whatever, it's class, and for me, it's aesthetic. Everything is—is is aesthetic motivation or or cultural motivations. For me, everything's just how is this a card trick? <laughs> That's my my lens, or how is this sleight of hand? Yeah, right. Um, but my my point is that so the aesthetic part of magic that always um, mind boggles me, and this is kind of the. Um, the, the, the level in which I, I like to keep the illusion without thinking necessarily thinking past that is the lack of knowledge and the uncertainty of whether when you chose nine, did, did Daniel control the deck to fit your dis- choice of nine or did Daniel control you to choose nine? And that, that's the question that always mystifies me in Magic and I, and I don't really want the answer. I, I, I love that mystery. Would, did he make you choose nine or did he change the physical world To fit your choice. And that fascinates me.
2: And there are two other permutations where I controlled both of them or I controlled
1: neither. And I just got really lucky. (laughs) It's the uh, Jack Sparrow option. Jack Sparrow is that is the, is the fourth permutation. Does he plan this or does he just get lucky? Um, So um, I I guess the, the thing that I want to ask you before, and now it actually flows uh, comfortably is that issue of mentalism. We slightly talked about this um, earlier this week at a bar um but how 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 much how much of that plays in which is basically the the, the side of the equation where you control the person
2: yeah mentalism is uh a, it it's sort of so it's its own genre of magic is the best way of describing it right the same way that for example classical music is a genre of music or jazz or whatever right just like close-up or sleight of hand type of the stuff is, is another genre um these are very loosely defined genres um so mentalism is a very broad term involving where I apparently read your mind or I apparently influence you to do something or I apparently, you know, do whatever. Now, a lot of mentalism grows out of the the fraudulent psychic mediums, right? Which were, right. right obviously, there were a lot of con men who were, uh, you know, doing things with cards, three-card Monty, cheating at cards, right? This was a totally different type of con, all of the fraudulent psychic mediums of the, the you know, 1800s. Um, starting with the the Fox sisters in 1848 and the whole spiritualism movement and whatnot. So, you know, uh, uh, that's a whole tradition that mentalism has grown out of. And mentalism is tricky because, right, when you're presenting mentalism, I think you have to be very careful. Because if you um, present mentalism as mind reading and you claim that you really can do it and that you really are reading people's minds, right, there is a certain percentage of people who who
1: are actually going to believe you, right, take it at face value, no matter how much you're going to telegraph and broadcast that this is an illusion, this is fake, the mind reading, the psychism, this is all just an aesthetic choice, this is not real, no matter how clearly you're going to communicate that there will be people who will still convince themselves that it's real take you literally and not seriously or wherever you want to uh, flip that metaphor
2: and furthermore um there's a great researcher i recommend everyone should read this book uh, if they're interested in this kind of thing in magic and psychology it's called uh, experiencing the impossible uh, the science of magic it's by a researcher named gustav kuhn who's from the uk uh, goldsmiths university um great research and he Does research about magic and psychology and it's great. I love his work. He, you know, is incredibly knowledgeable about this and I learned a lot from reading his book on this. It is written for the non-scientist, but it is written in such a way that if you have any kind of science background, it's still written for you. It's got all the levels of depth that you might want. He actually did this experiment. I might not remember the details perfectly, but a lot of people who do mentalism include what they would call a disclaimer in their act. What the disclaimer is, this isn't real. I don't actually have psychic powers. I'm just making it seem that way through whatever, whatever, whatever methods. And whether or not the methods they give you about how they create the impression of being psychic are even true, um, they're at least owning up to the fact that it's not all real, which is a step in the right direction. However, he surveyed people about, after they saw someone do some mentalism, about whether they believed this was... I mean, he, he got their initial opinions about what they think is, you know, real or not. And then after seeing them, what do you think is real or not? And then there was... um with or without a disclaimer and it basically doesn't make a difference if
1: yeah because and 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 presumably a large percentage of these people were persuaded after the show that mentalism is real
2: or that at least this person this individual has some form of real supernatural powers right Mm. and basically uh um it, it just did not um it just didn't make a difference because.
1: But what was his superpower defined as uh, just his extraordinary ability to actually read people, which could just be, you know, high emotional intelligence, or, or the same way that we are all mind readers—that we are able to pick up on some physical cues—and and to the extent that a person is exceptional at this kind of reading, it could come across as m- actually magical or supernatural. Sure.
2: And that—that's often given as sort of a, a secondary psychic. explanation, but even that you can't actually read people's minds by looking at their body language. Right, right. It's, not a, it's not a real thing. You can create the impression of that in magic. But like, for example, with mentalism, right? Some mentalists are like, I can read your mind. And other mentalists are like, no, I don't read your mind. I'm just reading your body language. That's not to... given you know, that's right, an overstatement. That's also not true. So you're saying Sherlock is a fictional character. Uh, <laughs> Sherlock Holmes is very much a fictional character. Now, again, the thing is, right, like, I don't have a problem saying that because I say the same thing about all the magic I do, right? I don't claim to have supernatural powers with cards. Now, there's a really key difference here. If I convince someone that I can do something with a deck of cards that's not possible and they actually go out into the world with that false belief, that does not negatively impact their everyday life. But if someone goes out into the world really believing that psychics exist, they become much easier for a fraudulent psychic to prey upon in a time of vulnerability. That's where... This stops being a fun, philosophical, well, you know, I'm being 80% truthful. What about you? Oh, I'm being 75% truthful. That's all fun and games. I think there's arguments to be made both ways, right? But where it stops being that is when people become actually more vulnerable to con artists. Now you're exploiting
1: the person's deepest weaknesses.
2: Right, and I would not want to contribute to someone falling victim to that experience by providing some evidence that they were looking for that there really are supernatural powers. I wouldn't want to create that impression. Now, that said, I think personally that given what I've learned about neuroscience, the actual explanations, again, not all of how they work, but giving, you know, 10, 20, 30 percent of it away, I think that the actual explanations for how magic, close up magic and how mentalism works are more interesting than the often kind of cover up fake methods like I can read your body language. It's like, well, no, that's not how this works. Um, I mean sure there is some there are certain things where body language reading plays a very small role But it's like a very minor role. It's there's other stuff going on, right? But the, the thing is that I think that being able to reveal a little bit about some of like the other context like okay You know, I don't have psychic powers But what's making it feel like I really am like what's the context I'm creating? How can I talk about that? You can talk about that in interesting ways without spoiling the fun. The problem with all of this, of course, is that as soon as you give away too much, it stops being magic anymore, and then it's not entertaining. And so if you are aiming to entertain people, you have to strike a balance between—you have to think for yourself about, okay, what level of, like, brute honesty or not am I comfortable with, right? Am I comfortable leaving people with a view that they didn't hold beforehand or, you know, being open to that possibility? Am I comfortable with that actually being a potentially harmful view to hold out in the world— do i really worry about you know i'm i'm not speaking for myself here i'm as a hypothetical person asking these questions i have thought a lot about this but and then also you know how much can i give away before it just is boring right and how much can i give away before it just sounds like i'm disproving things and that's not so fun so uh, you know there are people who handle this in a variety of different ways uh and they answer these questions for themselves and i think if you're going to like take being a magician mental if you're going to do the mentalism side of things you need to Really think about this carefully. I think beforehand before you before you decide to do it. And I have friends who take radically different approaches to this, right? Like I have friends in magic who are like super duper. I will never ever lie to them about anything. And other friends who are like way more lax about that. And I've heard them all articulate what I think are good, convincing arguments. Whether I buy into them or not, you know, requires a long discussion and some analysis. But like it. it, this is not an instance where there's like one obvious right answer and i don't want to imply that that's the case because i would be doing a disservice to the complexity of the issue and like the contexts in which one is appropriate or not so i just say that because while while i think in what i say it's probably semi clear where i land on this debate i don't want to i don't want to come off as saying that this is the only perspective um, there are other perspectives that I've heard good arguments for. I don't frequently hear good arguments for them, um, but I have heard them. Well, yeah, I mean,
1: <laughs> I've heard a lot of great arguments for media practices that I find um, below the pale. Yeah,
2: so I, I think that that
1: me- mentalism
2: is something with a pale tricky. And I, because I have some legitimacy of like actually at least having studied neuroscience at like a you know well-known college, it's like that lends extra credibility so i have to be even more careful about what i present because people might take that as like having some academic weight behind it and uh, my oh, my aim is not to be like i studied neuroscience at penn so i can read your mind it's like <laughs> no i, I st- like i actually have some real understanding of how magic operates at the level of the brain and at least can maybe pose interesting questions for so much that we don't understand um, and I think that that's actually a lot more interesting than the kind of smoke and mirrors that often takes its place.
1: So last question, time, time for you to drink. Last
2: question. Oh yes. Thank you. This is mine. I believe. Yes. Cheers. I will finally allow myself finally, to imbibe. Now that the
0: trick is done. Yes. Time. Yes.
1: Now they're going to ask the really hard hitting questions. <laughs> so who did you vote for? <laughs> <laughs> um, is it, is it the magic trick that you were worried about in terms of drinking or the, the questions? Um, I just wanted to—some
2: uh, of both. I mean, like, I just want to be able to, like, give you guys, like, interesting answers. And uh, I found that in the past, however much being tipsy makes me think I'm giving good answers in the moment— It doesn't lead to me giving, like, good, interesting, lucid answers when I listen to myself Mm. the next day. And the same is true of magic, yes. Um, Having a glass of wine with friends is great, but if I need to, like, think about things in a way that will sound good to sober me tomorrow, um, it's, you know, good for me to have, have not imbibed at all. And, like, if I'm performing for, if I'm, like, especially if I'm doing a formal performance, I never, ever drink before performing because it's just, I I have to be so. Yeah, but that's also, like, a long, how much is, how long is your performance? Well, some, oh, it varies. Some, some, I mean, sometimes you're booked for, like, 30 minutes. Other times you're booked for over an hour, right? It totally depends on the venue. Sometimes it's, like, strolling magic, an event that's multiple hours long, right? Um, like you could have a
1: booth in an event.
3: Or yeah,
2: just that that kind of thing can happen as well. So it really varies. But um, I'm also not really much of a drinker.
0: I find podcasts I could probably get away with a little bit tipsy. Although the one time I got drunk, I I'm glad we didn't air that <laughs> that episode. Oh yeah. Um, but with singing, because we also we also do music. Oh my god, I can't I can't hear pitch as well. It's shocking.
2: It's actually interesting for me. It's less the motor skills that go with magic. Like I'm. I've probably put about 20,000 or so hours into practicing sleight of hand and magic throughout my life. So I could probably, like, I've definitely, you know, in my college days at some parties was still able to do some magic very late at night or very early in the morning, um, which is weird. Was I able to coherently talk through those? (laughs) No. So I find that actually it's, I think the thing to really emphasize here is that there is a humongous amount of mental agility that's required to perform magic where Mm -hmm. i am like there's a lot i'm having to keep track of with the cards and with managing the audience members and also be present listen to what you're saying respond to what's going on all of that jazz so it's like there's so much that i'm having to attend to at any one time and flip back and forth between lots of different Mm things i gotta be i gotta be on so being mentally agile is critical yeah um what's
0: your last question
1: let me let me think about this for a second
2: it's funny i i i initially was planning to just do the first one with the card and the number that you Uh that you you, where you set a card and set a number but um as i was coming over here um i first of all kind of anticipating what we were going to talk about yeah um just wild guess i thought oh you know the scout mindset and elephant in the brain these are going to be interesting books if they haven't read them i think you guys will get some fun out of them so enjoy the read um yeah um two of my favorite books of the last year um but in addition, um, uh, as I was coming over with those books in hand, I was like, oh, wait, there's that book trick. I haven't done that for about three months. <laughs> I wonder if I can remember enough of how to do that one so this to is, do it
1: on th- the podcast. This is neither the questions from my phone nor what I was going to ask you about mentalism, but sure. um, just because you mentioned book trick, what's the name of the that, I guess, is a mentalist? Um, that guy who's, who's really good at talking about magic. Um and the the sort of illusion of magic he is is bald long hair, eloquent talented mentalist. Did long hair? I think he has he has like long bald but long hair. Uh well,
2: you well if it, if he's just bald, you might be talking about Darren Brown. If he's bald with long hair, you could be talking about Max Maven. potentially. Maybe yes, Maven. Max Maven. Ah, yeah. Wow, you are a connoisseur of magic. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you really are. Okay,
1: Maven. Impressed. I remember he had a, a an old performance. Actually, I guess it is more recent than his older performance, because he seemed older himself. In some event, and part of the trick was reading excerpts from a book on a particular page and a particular topic. But the person that he brought on to the stage wasn't an English speaker. So she was having difficulty actually reading the words and like you he, the the words were part of the the mystique of the right, performance right and it, it was completely lost on her oh interesting. And she she, <laughs> she actually missed some of the prompts mm. and that that just like connected to to Vanessa's question. she she's asked specifically about um, uh, neurotypical mm-hmm. audience but members but but more broadly like when you yeah. encounter That's- cross-cultural or certain disabilities or anything that that makes the language of magic yeah not translate is that something that you've encountered oh yeah so i would lump all of these into what i
2: would kind of describe as like logistical things Mm -hmm. like in a a performance right because right someone not being like exactly who you're looking for on stage in a way that's not their fault can happen for a million reasons Right. right and like again a lot of your questions rightfully so have been all about well how do you keep things deceptive how do you keep your secrets right once you actually start performing, again, within magic, right? A lot of people who do magic really just do it as a hobby, and that's fine, right? There's not that many people who, like, make a living performing, like, actually performing magic for actual people for actual money, right? Where, like, they are, that's that's literally what their income is. That It's a much smaller group. Um, and when you get to that point where, like, that's what you're doing, right, like, you are hired by either a, you know, op, you know, Often a wealthy client or a big company to do a thing, and you need to perform then and there that day, and you needs to be awesome every time. So, right, there are a lot of logistical things that you just learn about. Okay, I'm at I'm performing at a banquet where the tables are circular. If I don't have people turn their chairs around, fifty mm. percent of the room can't see me. Mm. Bad, right? <laughs> um, or you know, oh, um, this is a much bigger room than I was told it would be. I need a mic, I need to, you know, better have a sound system with me or have access to one, right? Or, like, you know, this, like, just looking at the audience, oh, that person looks great to participate, oh, nope, they went through four glasses of wine in the last 25 minutes. They're not coming up on stage. Um, These are just logistical things, right? Where, where you know, you want it to be a nice, seamless, smooth performance, and also for the sake of the audience member, right? You don't want to put someone under too much pressure and... They, you know, I can imagine if I was watching a performance in another country with people who spoke a different language and I didn't speak any of it or very little of it, I might feel really nervous coming up on stage if I was being asked to do language demanding tasks. if It's not a language demanding task. It doesn't matter as much. But like, these are just all logistical issues that you will, and and the way you learn to deal with these is you slam face first into every one of them and fall (laughs) apart completely. And then you figure out how to make that not happen again. And then you talk to other performers as well and they can kind of, remedy some of these for you and provide some some good kind of steps to take to not render those but it's it's really like it's it's the logistical stuff that gets you when you are actually out in like the real world performing for people um uh like the if if, if you can get people to see you do the magic you're doing for them you've good good success that's a big part of it um uh so yeah seeing the broadest sense like literally physically with their eyes could they point them at you and appreciate that a magic trick happened right like that can be surprisingly difficult in certain contexts um and so uh yeah making that happen there's a whole lot of logistical stuff that that you just don't know until you run into it
1: so last question um what's the biggest ethical concern around magic that you think about well
2: i think they're i'm gonna give you two of them one of them we've sort of already a discussed a or ten um no um Nine. <laughs> nine. Nine's, yes nine or eight eight or nine or yes nine? yeah um i can give you nine but numbers two through nine will all be the same um so uh well one we already touched on which is like what beliefs is the audience going to leave with and are you are they leaving with anything that could really actually be detrimental to them, right? You know, you know, kind of be honest with yourself. Is that really the case or not in, in this context? And it might be and it might not be. Um, and, you know, it's funny. Earlier I was talking about magicians who I know have very different perspectives. There's a, there's actually a group chat I'm in with two other magicians, and one of them is way on one end of a spectrum. The other one's way on the other end. I'm kind of smack in the middle between them. And I don't mean to say that I'm right because I'm in the middle, but it's just very interesting the kind of discussions and arguments that we have Um uh, in, in a positive way about these things, because we right. are we very much respect each other's opinions, we just have very different opinions. Um, so it's a lot of back and forth, which is very helpful. Um, they kind of serve as, um, we've all heard the term, like a yes man. They are very much my, they're, they're like a no man, which is <laughs> really important to have, because like this is not, maybe Daniel Kahneman said this, or someone in that vein, but the, you get the best feedback from someone who really cares about you but doesn't care about your feelings. Um, And those are those people for me where like, you know, someone will be like, oh, that was cool or whatever. And, you know, people will like kiss up to you for whatever reason. And they'll just be like, Daniel, that sucked. um, And here's why. Uh, And they'll, you know, and you need people to do that for you in any kind of performing context so that you don't, you know, you you don't become divorced from reality. Um, So that's one ethical concern after that slight diversion of, What's the audience going to believe? The other ethical concern with magic is before that
1: is, are there places where the person on the side of the spectrum of caution, yeah, thought that you were going too far? Um,
2: yeah, actually, and and I and then there are point. Well, if you're a total purist and that you will never ever lie to your audience about anything, then basically any kind of sleight of hand that I do, where I'm going to have to tell you some lies, right? They're not into. But if I'm of like, well, look, I'm willing to tell benevolent, benign lies in a performance, but I don't want to convince people that I'm able to do things that would be like harmful beliefs for them to hold, other people do that. And I I would, you know, criticize that. And if they're my friends, I criticize it loudly and openly to their face. And we have a lively debate about it. And we both, you know, learn from
1: that. But to some people on the more cautious side, even the sort of deception that you create Oh yeah, be too
2: I'm sh- much. I'm sure. Uh, yeah, uh, people occupy every part of that spectrum. Interesting. Absolutely, absolutely. Yep, yep. Um, so, so the second,
1: what's that? The, the second, second
2: is more within magic, which is the idea of um, sort of honoring your mentors and crediting people, right? Mm-hmm. Which is real important. So there is there. When I mean, we talked about magic being a guild, and I said it's less of a guild, but there still is an honor code. The honor code is not. I mean, you always hear, "Oh, the honor code." Never do the same trick twice. Never reveal a secret. And those are just kind of party lines. Those aren't real things that people care about. Um, but what does really matter is being honest about your sources and your inspirations and giving credit where credit is due. Um, and if you miscredit someone, write them an email and apologize and, you know, fix it. Right. Um, and, and to not take credit for things that you yourself haven't, like, come up with, right, and to be fair about where stuff came from. That's a huge thing in the magic community um, because unlike, you know, like in stand-up comedy, right, as I understand it, basically you have to write all your own jokes, right? You are not meant to use jokes from other people. Magic's Unless you're
1: Robin Williams.
2: <laughs> magic, however, um, is – very different in that there are many magicians who have a perfectly good career performing only magic that they read in books. Magic, and and that's not an insult to them at all. That's fine. That's something that, like, everyone performs tricks that are not their own because these were published in a magic book for other people to do and perform, right? But, like, if you look in the description of any of my YouTube videos, you'll find a, at least one sometimes multi-paragraph block of text where I'm like, now, uh, this section of the video is inspired by this idea from this person, which was published in this book in this year. And this next thing was published by this person in this book in this year. And I don't have an exact source, but people I trust who know more about magic history than I do say that this person invented this You basically this
1: thing. establish an entire magical bibliography to your to your videos.
2: Yes, but to the best you, of my ability. But
1: you also incorporated that into your act to an extent. A lot of mm-hmm. your the, the narrative arc of your shows, at least the one that I was able to watch on YouTube, rely on a combination of intellectual history and Mm -hmm. some historiographical approach to magic. What about magicians that don't do that? That's not their style. Their entire presentation is to transport you to uh, a a different uh, dimension of experience, something that's not grounded stylistically in in history. That's... Fine. Where do they put their citations? So it's less about it's not that you need. It's like if
2: I do a a show for the public, right? Magicians don't require that I cite stuff. What it comes down to is if you're just doing a a show for the the public, right? It's not you don't need to give them a bibliography. It's that if you are gonna like make a video or something or something that's gonna live on the internet, you, Mm. in my opinion, not everyone agrees with this. There are lots of arguments I've heard one way or the other. I think that you should cite your sources and be fair about your citations. And and importantly, right, it's not just that you have to cite your sources. is that you don't, you know, if a trick was invented by 10 different people, you're not going to go say, well, this was all invented by person number two. It's like, well, that there is a very complex history to these ideas, and you have to be nuanced about it, right? Like, like there have been times in in my YouTube videos where, like, I— you know missed a citation by one year like i thought person a invented something because they published in in 1999 but actually it was published in 1998 first by another guy and i mixed it up and i got an email from that other guy who was like hey you're not crediting my work and i w- looked up some magic bibliography i was like oh my god i'm so sorry i misremembered the year of publication my bad and he was like totally fine you know we worked it out so it's a situation right where like there wasn't any malicious intent on my part I just couldn't remember which one was published in 1998 versus 1999, and that's my bad. I should have I should have double checked. Um, but that's very different from like people who are like intentionally trying to like not credit other people or just they don't know the literature themselves. Um, so there is a whole there, there are lots of perspectives on this, not just mine. And also there's a whole kind of honor code within magic about being you know citing your sources, about you know showing respect for your mentors and and all of that, and being clear about where stuff came from. So that's why, if you look at any of my videos, you're going to find a. On YouTube, you'll find at least one, usually many paragraphs. If I have limited space, I'll at least put the names of the people when I don't have space to do a whole citation
1: block on certain it other platforms. It sounds like this is another tradition that would easily or is easily being eroded by yeah, YouTube. Exactly. Yeah, it's absolutely. Oh, being my, my, by my YouTube, source yeah. is this guy in his, his underwear who was teaching me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And even if you
2: did learn it there, it, you know, if. If you're going to do this seriously, and if you wish to be taken seriously seriously by other people in the magic community, it behooves you to uh, find out where this actually came. To from. To do your research. It's actually great—a website by this magician named Dennis Bear. It's called Conjuring Archive. It is the biggest online back magic bibliography. It's hugely helpful, incredible database that this guy and a team put together. But yeah, like a centralized bibliography—a centralized bibliography for all things magic. It's great. And
0: if people want to check out your. YouTube video.
2: Yes, so uh youtube. Dot, or if you YouTube. google <laughs> If you google Daniel Roy Magic, you'll find me um on YouTube oh, oh. and Instagram and TikTok and any other platform that ever exists, I will be at Daniel Roy Magic.
0: You're getting oh. in touch with your Gen Z roots on yeah, TikTok. Yeah. So how are you
2: liking uh, TikTok? I don't know. I've only done it for a week, so I really don't know. Um, I Let us say, know how, yeah, they, how that adventure yeah. um, pans out. It's been interesting. You're also
0: available for gigs. Yes. Yeah, so
2: then. Uh, briefly, <laughs> uh, since I guess we're in self-promotion phase. Um, uh, so I brought
0: you to it. it this was is great. my um, doing.
2: So uh, currently I run an online course on Patreon. So if you want to learn magic and sleight of hand, I do teach private lessons. But most uh, the these days people sign up for my online course. Uh it's called Card Magic One O One. So if you just go to cardmagic 101com you'll find it. So corporate entertainment, private parties, you know, uh those are kind of my main venues. Uh so I'm also hopefully will someday in New York have my own like running parlor show at a mm. fancy hotel or upscale space or whatever, you know, a recurring uh you know weekly or monthly show. Uh it's kind of kind of more of a theatery thing, but Neat. that's another thing I'm hopefully going to uh get to do someday.
0: All right. Well if If the pandemic allows, one day soon in the future in New York City, we'll all be at a Daniel Roy venue. And in the meantime, check out the YouTube. Yep. And website. And (laughs) a lot of stuff is virtual
2: these days. So I do, you know, Zoom shows and all that jazz. Let's talk
1: about your parents.
0: Uh, Next time. Yes. Next time on episode (laughs) episode two. Yes. Thank you, Daniel. Of course.
2: Of course. Thanks very much
1: thank you for listening to uncertain things follow us on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts we are uncertain pod on the social media and if you're feeling generous please give us a five-star review on apple podcasts because that helps a lot share us with your friends and enemies and until next time stay sane cool
0: is there a term for the space where you do the magic
2: the table in front of me, <laughs> next to the microphone, Wait,
0: doesn't have in. jargon. No,
2: uh, not not for this. Yeah, the okay. working surface. Yeah, the working surface. Um, Field of
0: deception.
2: Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so this is going to be a bit of an experiment because, of course, a lot of this is just going to be for your audio listeners. So right. I'm going to be performing some magic, and I've selected things that I'm hoping maybe will play. Over, uh, uh, over this. So, what this means? I mean,
0: in case not, we do have the video rolling. So, oh, for okay, audio perfect. listeners yes. who yes. who Want are unsatisfied right. with the yes. audio version of this trick, right? That, would you like me to help with narrating or anything like that?
2: That's uh, you. You read my mind. Okay. Um, first trick done. No. Um, yes, um, yes.
1: Yeah, I knew it. Uh, no, the, um, 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 also, I'm wondering, if, if, and, and tell yeah. us if if it's going to disrupt your work. Sure. If we if we just have also a, uh, an iPhone camera.
2: Um. If it was here, it would get in the way just because okay. then it, so uh, no, you're going your to need your hands free. don't get any more yeah, trouble. Nah, this is fine. Um, okay. Um, so yeah, of course, for listeners, if I say, now I'm putting a card on the table, they're not going to believe me. Okay. But if you narrate it, either I've paid you <laughs> a lot host. of money yeah. um, or you're, you're, so I will have you have you narrate some things. Um,
0: I solemnly swear I've been given no money to say the, whatever I'm about right. to say.
1: Yeah. But, but that, purposes we need to admit that daniel roy is the new sponsor of the
0: podcast yes <laughs> <laughs> <In this> podcast,
1: <laughs> daniel roy magic making tricks work on air since now
2: uh, no. see if it works okay um it's funny uh a lot of our um discussion so far has revolved around um uh cognitive biases mm-hmm. blind spots how to see things clearly or not um, and there are uh, two books I actually brought with me that I can give to you. You may have read these, and if you have, that's fine. Um, one's called The Elephant in the Brain, and the other's called The Scout Mindset. Have you guys read either of these? No. The Elephant
1: in the Brain, yes.
2: Yes. Um, two of my favorite books of the year presenting what I'd say are actually pretty different takes on the same topic, some of which you might buy their arguments. You might not, but I think they're interesting reads. Um, so... Uh, would you take either book?
0: Okay, I'll take the oh, elephant. Oh,
2: just just one of you. You're I'll take, take the those? elephant in the right, brain. Just put it under the under the couch. Under the couch. We'll leave it. Brain. We'll come back to it. Vanessa
0: today. is putting the elephant in the, in the brain
2: under the couch. Wait. So yeah. like,
0: our couch is a little annoying, but it's
2: it's, it's completely irrelevant. Okay. I just okay. wanted to get rid of one of the books up front <laughs> okay. because we're only gonna need one of them. Um, Got it. Okay, and then with cards. But um, is it irrelevant? No, just uh, yeah, Keep going. No, it is actually... That book <laughs> actually is irrelevant. Um, now, um, what... Um, so we'll use the Scout Mindset by uh, Julia Golov. We'll use that in a minute. Um, okay, and then with cards, we are going to need uh, both decks of cards. We can't throw one of them away, but... Um, I will give you whichever deck you take, you're going to put it in your pocket and we will use it later. Okay, so Adam you know is taking the blue
0: deck and okay. he's putting it in his pocket. Perfect.
2: Okay, so we've got two decks. It's a full it's... deck,
0: it has plastic on it So Oh, um, I just, oh, uh, sorry.
2: yes, uh, the the seal is broken, but otherwise just it would be a You're that just, good uh, plastic
0: crunch, people.
2: Yeah, good ASMR content. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Love it. Um, okay. Uh,
0: Okay. So, so Daniel has the red.
2: deck. Yeah, So I've got a red deck of cards, and Adam has a blue deck of cards in in the box. His jeans pocket, his, jeans pocket, his right jeans pocket, importantly. Uh, Next to my phone. Perfect. Now, um, what I'm going to uh, ask you to do, Vanessa, is give me a number, any number you want, uh, from one to fifty-two. Nine. Nine. Are you absolutely sure that nine is the number you want?
0: <laughs> no. Can I change?
2: You can change your mind.
0: I'll go with eight. Eight. <laughs>
2: That's like not a not a drastic change, but do you want eight or I
0: want nine. <laughs> It's
2: really up to you.
0: Oh, uh, I, I guess I'll. Apply
1: the things that we've learned.
0: I I'll. will stick with nine. Oh, you I'll stick want nine? With nine.
2: <laughs> okay, nine. It will be. Um, and what I'm also gonna do is, Vanessa, would you just touch a card on the back? Just touch any. Yeah, just point to one. Boop. All right. Now it's actually okay if I see what it is in this circumstance, because okay. it's not that kind of a trick. Um. Okay, uh, Jack of uh, Hearts. Okay. Now um, I, that was
0: me booping the Jack of Hearts. Yes,
2: that was you booping the uh, Jack of <laughs> Hearts. And um, I guess show you a, a one of the one of the early tricks that um, that I learned because uh, I was mentioning earlier about um, how I you know was at the what do you the fundraiser thingy thing and we, when you uh, were a kid. Yeah, when I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also going to where, did we go with eight or nine?
0: 9 Do you want to stick
2: with 9 or do you want to go to 8?
0: <laughs> okay, I'm going to stick with 9. Adam says I should stick
2: with You're 9. You absolutely sure? Maybe Adam is in on it and I'm just pressuring <laughs> you to stick with 9. We're going to you. With nine. You're gonna stick with 9.
0: You're going to stick with
2: 9? I think so. Okay, to <laughs> stick with 9. Great. Um I'm also going to have you choose another card for later because okay. we need a second one, so I'll go through just touch one on the back. Up to you. Okay, I'm going to, uh, this card, instead of looking at it, I will leave it here, and we're going to come back to it later. Start out with Jack of Hearts. Um, okay, so, so the other card is just on the table. Yes, another card, face down on the table, away. come back to it later. Jack of Hearts is the important one. Now, the first trick I ever saw, and this is going to be primarily visual, so you'll be able to appreciate it, people okay. on the podcast uh, listening, well... Uh, tough luck. I promise it gets better. So I'm going to take the jack of hearts uh, and I'm going to put it uh, relatively close to the middle of the deck. Okay. So importantly, you can see it's not on the bottom or on the top. Right. Fair enough. I
0: don't know where it is, but it's somewhere in the deck. And this was
2: the, the very first trick I saw. So um, when you say go, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to try to make that card jump uh, to the top. So tell me when to go. To the to- Like
0: to the top of the deck? To deck? Yes. Tell okay. me when to go.
2: Go. Done. The uh, Jack of Hearts is now on the top.
0: Uh-huh. Now, the Jack of Hearts is indeed at the top of the deck. Instead
1: of just putting it... Daniel kept the, the, the deck upside down, then yes, revealed. Yes, it's exactly. Top.
0: It didn't jump, actually. But yes, it, it it invisibly. Yes.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
2: um, I'm going to put the card this time, like, uh, actually, exactly uh, ninth from the top. Exactly ninth from the top. Okay. So tell me when to How go. did
0: you know it was ninth from the top? Well, I'll count. explain that. Okay. In, yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. So now what? I'm yeah, saying go say, again? Say
2: go in. Go. Done. Okay, so you've established the so Yeah. Now, yes. um, but you expressed some skepticism there, which I respect, okay. um, because <laughs> I, I claimed that I put a certain card exactly ninth from the top, uh-huh. right? Um, you were like, oh, how'd you know it was ninth? Maybe yeah. it wasn't ninth. So, what if I go the other way? We'll use the other card. It's okay, okay if we look the at it. Secret um, card. K- King of Spades this time. King of Spades. Just so you know, there's not something special about one of these cards. Okay. Um, so, King of Spades. This time, how about this? I'll put the King of Spades on top. And I will make it jump to the ninth position. So it'll go from the top to the ninth position from okay. the top. It's definitely on the
0: top. I just saw it. He yeah, just watched it. Definitely okay. here. You
2: say go, it will be ninth from the top. Tell ah, me to
0: go. Okay. Go. Done. <laughs> okay. King of Spades is now ninth
2: from the top. <laughs> Not in this deck of cards.
0: No, in a Dom's pocket?
2: There's been a deck of cards this entire time inside Adam's pocket, which is in the case. So, Adam, what I want you to do is take the cards out. I'll get your uh, wine they out of the way. And I want you problem. to take <laughs> them out and hold them face down like you're going to deal. Hold them face down okay. like you're going to deal. Adam
0: is pulling out the cards face down.
2: And you're now going to deal face down onto the table eight cards. So, very slowly, you'll count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, which means this is nine. Is yes, that right? that's the one. So you could have said um, any card uh, or any number, I should say, and you yes. said nine. We went back and forth from eight to <laughs> nine to nine to eight. <laughs> yeah, uh, And we could have, you could have said any card. What was the card? It was the king of uh, spades. King of spades. Would you take a look at the uh, ninth oh,
0: card? <laughs> it is indeed the king of spades. Yay! Ooh. Okay, clap, clap, clap. Glad clap. that worked.
2: I'm very glad. I that would worked. clap,
0: but I'm snapping because I have a microphone <laughs> in my hand.
3: <laughs> that is wild. That was
0: crazy. Yeah.
2: Good. All right. I'm glad. I'm glad that uh, that worked. I, I never know <laughs> with these um, whether uh, whether they'll actually work out.
3: Um, mm. yeah
2: so that's kind of an example of just something where you know it, we were talking about the creative process earlier and the idea of you know how do you how do you you know impose constraints so this is like okay well it's got to be something that can be done where people are able to participate um and also something where uh, you know it'll even if you can only listen as long as you guys can confirm that mm. actually oh no it really was ninth from the top and I'm not just you know making things up as I go along mm-hmm. that you know this really did occur in, in some way so uh, that that's been kind of a, a fun thing to think about um
0: so when you ask me to say Go. It's really irrelevant when I say go. Like, there's actually no. Like, you've already done the trick. Like, immediately. Yeah, it's sort
2: of. Well, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it serves two purposes. One, it emphasizes that I'm not actually manipulating the cards, or at least it doesn't look like I'm actually manipulating mm. the cards. But two, the other thing it does is uh, it um, provides a little kind of comedic, um, you know, <laughs> moment, and also just some. Uh, just some tension building. Moment. Yeah. Um, I should mention that I'm going to give you uh, both these decks of cards souvenirs at the end of, at the end of the podcast. Um, are
0: these the ones that, uh, people can get on your, or one day get on your, uh, sho- uh, one your day merch? you'll
2: be able to buy cards on my website. Um, okay. these cards you can buy at uh, any store. I mean, okay. like, uh, Walgreens, Costco. <laughs> yeah. Just a deck of, uh, just a deck of cards. Okay. Um, uh, I'd like to give one more of yeah. these a shot. We're going to yeah. see if this Please works do. or not. This will be more experimental than the last Ooh,
0: one. Ooh, okay.
2: Interesting. Um, so can you hand Adam the mic? I can now? indeed. i have you primarily help out with this one because you did the dealing in the last one. So Vanessa, I'm going to um, give these cards a, uh, a shuffle. shuffle, shuffle. And these were the cards that, uh, importantly, that you handled a moment ago. I and mean, you yep. can see they're not all like the Queen of Spades or anything like that. Fair I'm enough. And, and in... In fact, I'm going to give you the chance to uh, to mix these in just a moment uh, yourself. Um, but in the uh, meantime, uh, I'm going to uh, drop through the cards. Well, if I do it face up, you can see is the problem, so I'll do it face down. And I want you to call stop about halfway down so we can split the deck approximately in half, okay? So you call stop about halfway. Stop. All right, are you happy there? Do you want to go another card or two? Uh. Happy there? Yes. Okay. And I'm going to give you these cards. So it's very important. Hold these like you're going to deal. What's very important before we go on is that you chose exactly which cards you ended up with. If you'd called stop at a different point, we'd each have different cards. I'm going to need to teach you a few different um, card handling things. Now, whether or not you've played cards before, I'm going to show you how magicians handle cards. So I'll explain a couple things. Don't worry. I'll walk you through it very slowly. The first thing is simply how to deal cards. So hold them uh, like you're going to deal, and I want you to deal one card and just put it on the table like this. Good. And then you're going to deal the next card on top of it like this, and you're going to keep dealing like this into a pile. Very good. Now, you don't have to deal off the top. You could also deal off the bottom if you want to. Take a card from the bottom, or even from the middle. You can deal from wherever you want. Yeah. There you go. Very good. And in fact, pause there and just give the remaining cards a shuffle. Shuffle them like this. Mix them up as much as you like. And then you can continue dealing. You can deal off the top or off the bottom. You could deal two at a time or three at a time. And whenever you want... No, that's fine. That's fine. Totally fine. No, the trick doesn't work. No, it's fine. And whenever you want, you can stop and shuffle again. And we're just going to keep doing this until you've made one big messy pile on the table.
0: Very messy. I'm going from the bottom. I'm going from the top going from the middle awkwardly. And doing perfect.
2: Okay. Exactly. Yep. Very good. Ooh, very nice. Slick bottom deal at the end. And from the middle. And are you going to do the last two? Great. Okay, perfect. And square all the cards up like this. All right, good. And then um, now we are going to trade piles for this next part. So I'm going to give you my pile and you're going to take mine. And the next thing is, do you know how to see a see magician's fan cards out? Mm-hmm. So you're going to spread the cards out like this. And um, what you're right. going to...
0: So much nicer fan than my fan. Almost like he does it for a living. You've been doing this a little (laughs) while,
2: right? Here's what you're going to do in a moment. You're going to just take a few cards out of the middle. Of mine. Yeah, just out of the middle, and you're just going to put them on top of uh, your pile like this. Perfect. The reason, of course, you do this is it changes the order of all the cards. It changes which cards are on top, right? Yeah. We're going to do this a second time, but we're going to trade. So first of all, you're going to spread these out, and I'm going to choose a few from the middle of your pile. I guess I'll take maybe a small group from here, and I'll put them on top of mine. Now, square yours up. I'll do the same. I'll spread mine out. Just take a few out of the middle. Yeah, three, four, five. Up to you. That looks good. And put them on top of yours. More than five, so That's fine. Doesn't matter. And now we're going to trade again. Okay. Reason we yeah. do this, right, is at this point, right, you have now mixed. Of course, you decided how we split the cards, but you've now also mixed all the cards in both piles and changed the order of them. Now, to a ridiculous doing, extent. Right. And now what we're going to do is we're going to uh, make four piles. So just take a few cards, not all of them, just uh, maybe three or four cards, and kind of put them uh, in a in a pile. Let's say right there right? And then you're going to take a few more, just a few, you're going to still have some cards left over at the end, and then you're going to take a few more and put them here, and then a few more and put them here, and I will uh, do the uh, same thing. Let me just slide this ever so slightly so I've got space. Okay, we're good. We're good. Yes, 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 we're good. All right, make a pile here and make a pile here. So, in other words, from the cards that you shuffled, we've both just made four piles. But we do still have some cards left uh, in our in our hands, like this. So, what you're now going to do is we're going to start dealing. So, start on either end, this one or that one.
0: Wait, sorry, what do you want me to do? You want me to deal them where?
2: Yep. So you're going to deal one card there.
0: Okay. So I have four piles on the table. Daniel has four piles on the table. I'm going to start.
2: Uh, but dealing from your hand. Dealing there.
0: from my hand into the piles.
2: Yep. And then you're going like to deal so. one to the next pile. Got it. One to the next, and then you're just going to cycle exactly like this. Yep. Exactly. pandemic
0: legacy flashbacks good okay
2: so to recap right uh, a deck of cards that you have hopelessly shuffled both piles you decided how we split the cards you decided exactly how we made these piles right? you shuffled, you cut they're uneven, there's no consistency so there's no way anyone could have known uh, in advance which cards you'd end up with, how they'd be mixed or even what cards would end up uh, on the tops of your piles so let's see how you did Um, let's turn over this card, see how it was oh a king, that's a good card king of hearts all right. Why don't you turn over the next one? See how he did. Did we get uh, any? pile number two? Did any match? <laughs> king of clubs. Oh, this is good. This is good. <laughs> and what about the next one? What about the next one?
0: Pile number three is a king of spades. <laughs> All right. And pile number four is a king of diamonds. What? Wait. Wait. What, I want to see your pile. The question is right.
2: If you you're got becoming the four your kings, sisters. Yeah. Yeah. If yeah. you've got the four kings, hopefully I should have done a little better. I've gotten an Whoa. ace and. Okay, and a, um, and a three of diamonds and a six of hearts and a two of diamonds. Um, all right, well, that's well, what you're... I get for trying something new in a podcast. But um, my
0: pile worked. But Mine your pile was worked. Very, Yay. Very, impressive. This
2: is good.
1: Um,
0: we could just cut the trick there. Yeah. We don't have to
1: do Yeah, anything. we don't. <laughs> but it's actually, first of all, it's kind of awesome because we were talking about the right. ex- experimentation. And second, yeah. uh, I mean, because I'm clueless about magic it's actually more mind-blowing that you controlled Vanessa's deck than yours (laughs) yeah do you want do you want to try a redo
2: oh wait you know what let me um do you want this is actually something we we talked about earlier where I was saying that um when you're when you're when uh, when stuff goes wrong Mm -hmm. right there are times where it goes wrong and you both where I know what went wrong before you did this was not one of those options this is where we found out about it at the same time but what I didn't mention is you can try to salvage it like I at least got one 1A so I could say, oh look, it's ace 2-3. That's pretty good, right? I'm going to try to salvage this, um, and I'm going to kind of be just improvising here. We'll see if I can get anything worthwhile to happen. So it is important to say that even though these were the cards that um, I ended up with, these were cards that you also shuffled at the very beginning, right? You went through these. We traded cards, right, when we had the piles. Fair enough? So you had some control over yes. the order of these cards. Great. So even if I was, you know, pulling all the strings, I couldn't have exerted any real control here. Um. Instead of looking at this like, um, I guess instead of looking at like a four, uh, like just, you know, kings, we could look at it as like a a, a number, like different digits. So I guess, right, a three would be a three, and an ace is a one, Mm -hmm. right, generally, and then a six is six, and then a two is two. Um, And you might remember that not only did I give you a choice over cards, uh, you chose which card, deck of cards to put away for us Mm -hmm. to not use, you also chose which book for us to put away to not use, leaving us with the Scout Mindset. Would you take this from me? All right. Um, let me think about this for a moment. All right, l- l- let's try this. Let's say, th- so, so 3162, that's the number we've got here, right? Those are the four cards I ended up with. Three of diamonds, ace of clubs, six of hearts, two of diamonds. Fair enough? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. If we interpret this, um, where can I go with this? <laughs> oh, okay, how about this? How about this? So, 3-1, like, um, let's pretend this is number 31. Okay. That's a page number. Can you go to page 31 in the book?
0: <laughs> sure. See so where we end up with. Get some of this more ASMR. Yes. yes.
1: Some good book book page turning. We are now turning the pages of the scout, s- mindset. the scout Mindset.
2: Great book, by the way. Highly recommend. To page 31. And of course, if you have this uh, book at home, you can uh, follow along in uh, your, well, this is a hardcover copy. So page 31, is that where we're at? And it's, it
0: reads, man. Are we rationally irrational? Is yes. Is what it says on this page.
2: And then I guess, so we've got 31, but then we've got two other numbers. We've got a six. So I guess, let's interpret this as being the line number. So can you count down to the sixth line of the page? Uh sorry. From the very top, I mean. From knew. the very top. Yeah, from the sorry, top. Sorry, I of the got page. distracted ah, by yes. the are we rational? <laughs> yes. Yeah. No. The sixth line of the page. <laughs>
0: this is the. I some some things. Some people see things clearly, and others don't. Yeah. One, two, three, four, five, six. That's okay. the last line of, of the first paragraph.
2: paragraph. And then the number is two. So can you count in? What's the second word of that line? Brain. Oh, that's a good word. Kind of something to do with the pie.
0: (laughs) Ta-da! Yay! (laughs) (laughs)
2: I'm kidding. I just kind of wanted to see what we'd end up with. Um, But to be clear, right, from cards you shuffled, we ended up with 3162, and you went to page 31, and you went to the sixth line, and you went to the second word. So there's really no way we could have known exactly what word we would land on here. Fair enough? That's true. However, before we started filming, I asked for two implements from you guys. Yes. Remember what those were?
0: Paper and... You had the pencil, and Uh, I gave you the paper. I wrote something down with a pen on paper, yes. Yes, and I also gave you a coaster to put Mm -hmm. the paper under.
2: Have I gone near the coaster?
0: (laughs) No, you have not. Not since you started. Not since you put the paper under it.
2: Um, Would you, so the word we ended up with was brain, which could have been any word in either book, right? You could have picked a different book. You also could have uh, ended up at different cards. So for example, if we'd been one card uh, before, it would have been a four instead of a three, or it could have been, for example, an eight instead of a one so we could have ended up at any page, at any line, at any word in either book, but we ended up uh, at brain.
0: Right. No.
2: <laughs>
0: no. Okay.
1: Vanessa lifts the coaster. <laughs> Vanessa, carefully unfold the paper. Vanessa, reveal the folded paper. Show the word. No. It says brain. Don't show it to me. Show it to the camera.
0: <laughs> oh, it says brain.
1: <laughs> what? Indeed it does.
0: So did you... Are you messing with us mm. oh man it's all in the it's all
1: in the brain <laughs> well done it's amazing i've <laughs> i've 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 watched um a bunch of, of I mean, i'd say i don't know if hours it's probably hours of daniel's magic <laughs> on, on youtube i know that the, that the the false fake that the false Ooh. mistake is is part of his is, of his um yeah. act but even like i was like i was not sure is it real so I, and, I, and I will leave it at that. Maybe, maybe maybe it wasn't this was a fallback. Maybe it was the plan the way this is.
2: Was this plan A or B or C exactly. or
1: F? Who knows? May
0: I, may I inspect the rest of the paper? Of course you may. You
1: Do make sure
2: that there are no it. other words. <laughs> I didn't go through the entire lexicon of both books and write every word. You didn't, you
1: didn't just, you just put the book under the...
2: Correct. No, there was um, one, just one piece of paper and only one word. Now, yeah. if
0: I open the other book and I go to page 31, line 6, 4, 2, it won't be brain.
1: Different right? word. Which at least at the minimum means that he he had two different ways of controlling his hand, which is fucking bananas.